Sump City Radio, a Necromunda podcast, is best listened to with headphones for maximum quality and effect. The show may contain profanity and mature content, not suitable for dupes under the age of 14. Listener discretion is advised. Hello listeners, it's me, Hive Scum Steve again. Are you jumping straight in from the end of Pub Tales in part one, or did you take a break? I personally went got a sandwich that Cannabella made for me out of the studio fridge. Topside beef and horseradish. Mmm, mm. so good. No idea where she got the beef from down in the underhive though. Can't remember the last time I saw a cow. Anyhow, we return you now to the first of two War Room segments with a new guest host. Enjoy part two of Some City Radio, episode nine, V for Venator. This really is a good sandwich. Okay, listeners, welcome back, and uh, that is another pub tale. So yeah, again, as I mentioned before, if you've got any ideas for that, uh, write in either on our email address or slap up a message in the community Facebook page and let us know what you think. Uh, Okay, up next is the War Room. Welcome to the War Room. Let's talk tactics. Okay, the uh, the war room, as most people will know, is the part of the show where we break down a gang in one way or another uh, in a more sort of technical, tactical aspect. Um, now, normally we have our uh, tactical genius, Jess Lee, with us, but he's only recently just got married. So uh, congratulations to Jess Lee. And so he just wanted to take a bit of time off. Um, so as a result, we've had to put out the feelers for a guest host. Now, uh, one of the responses that we had come back was from an Escher gang called the Weird Sisters, and they said that their propagandist was someone who'd actually be worth getting in contact with and he's uh, located out in Sector Chronicus which is a dome over from us. Now um, lo and behold you'd be surprised to find out that it's actually Tony Rhodes. Now for those of you that don't know who Tony is you might have seen him possibly in a couple of the messages in the group but um, he used to be part of the Chronicles of the Underhive podcast as well. So listeners welcome to the show Tony Rhodes. Hello. Thank you for having hey, Tony. me. Hi, Tony. Thanks for joining us, man. Oh, no problem. Any time. I've, uh, I've been listening to the broadcast for a while now, and I definitely wanted to come on. Um, I definitely wanted to catch up with you guys and uh, broadcast out to Sump City. Oh, thank you very much. Well, as, as we discussed earlier on, um, and Chris was saying, um, we did have plans to bring you on at some point or another, and it was kind of around when the House of Blades initially dropped, but then we, we just had various other things kicking off at the time, and it never came to be. But I'm, I'm glad that we've managed to get you on to the show now. Well, yeah, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get out of my own dome at the time due to uh, you know this damn zombie plague. So, yeah, and I we're still having problems with it now. I've got protests going on in some city for it. I don't know if you've heard about that. Oh yeah, yeah, um, I've I've been actively involved in a lot of protests, as you can imagine. The Weird Sisters have certainly got some opinions on what's going on. I'll be broadcasting about those myself in the near future. Speaking of which, uh, and broadcasts, you've got your own podcast going now, haven't you? I do. So as as you mentioned, I was actually originally part of. The Chronicles from the Underhive podcast, but I have since branched out, and I now actually am hosting the Narrative Wargamer podcast, which Ooh. is a it's a forty k podcast um, as opposed to an Ekromander one, um, but it's focused on non competitive play. It's just all about narrative play, casual play, and all the different ways that you can actually play the game. And there's tons of resources and alternative ways to play in 40k that just don't get covered by the majority of podcasts and other content creators out there so awesome 
Uh, yeah. Oh, that's what we like to hear that we're covering it in all aspects. I know for a fact that we've got an element of crossover with our listeners for the the wider forty k universe. So we'll make sure to stick a link for that in the show description for you when we post up the uh, the episodes, and uh, hopefully that'll get a few more people your way. Excellent, yeah. So yeah, with the War Room, we do more of a tactical breakdown on gangs, and the reason why we would have gone to Tony anyway when House of Blades dropped is that Escher is his house. Um, so I'm hoping, Tony, that you'll have some you know, new and interesting insights for us with regards to Escher. It's certainly become my hallmark. I know it's what I was known for over on Chronicles, um, and it is very much the primary gang that I've always played since the release of the game. Well, the 2017 edition anyway. Um, and part of the reason for that is because I just really love the the rather esoteric approach to warfare and like gang warfare that the Escher bring. They're not just guys with guns that shoot you. One of the things that I really liked about the gang was this aspect of like chemical warfare, which isn't really explored massively in some other like games workshop systems such as Warhammer 40,000. You don't really get much in the way of biological or chemical warfare in that. Um, and that's very much Escher's shtick. Oh, especially so with the House of Blades drop. They've kind of gone all in on it. Oh, yeah. The... Um, uh, what's it called? The Chem Alchemy uh, system looks amazing, and I'm gonna have so much fun with um, all the new stuff in there. In fact, obviously, this being what the third part of coverage now on the House of Blades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's still stuff in here that obviously ties um, closely to the Alchem Alchemy system, which we'll discuss shortly. But I'm really looking forward to getting out there with all these wonderful new toxins and gases and all sorts. It's gonna be lots of crazy things we can do with it. One of the things that I was known for favouring when we discussed like tactics and gang building of uh, in, back on the Chronicles podcast was this concept of um, board control. Tom used to hate yes. all the different methods and war gear and tricks and tactics <laughs> cards I'd used to basically manipulate where and how like these combats and conflicts were going to go down. And I think the Escher are one of the best gangs for achieving that. Pull back to something you just said, Tony, about how um, it's it's the first time really um, that like the biological chemical warfare has been um, utilized in a game mechanic because because obviously there's there's various virus bombs and and chemicals and 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 chem alchemy and chemistry and science and. Uh, yeah, explored throughout the depth like of of forty k law, and it comes back to one of my favorite things about Necromunda, and I say one of my favorite things about a lot of stuff, but that's why I, I love the game so much is the microscope you can put onto the setting so that a gang like Escher can take full advantage of something like chem alchemy, um, use it as a game mechanic, and it be something that. Put um, makes them unique within the setting, and I just think um it yeah it's it's really exemplary exemplary of kind of um how Necromunda can just put that pinpoint focus on something that maybe has been in the law for the last forty years, but has never kind of seen a tabletop um rule or or gameplay mechanic. Yeah, and I think it's that granularity of it that is what really speaks to it, because, for example, obviously there are toxic weapons and things in Warhammer 40,000, but on that tabletop, on that grand scale of you know armies clashing, a toxic weapon basically 
boils down to are you always wounded on a two plus? Yeah, sort of thing. It's just it's really good at wounding non-vehicle targets, basically. Otherwise, you might possibly get some uh, like fear-related things tied to say gas or hallucinogenics, and again, that might just be a stratagem or a special rule that basically says they, that that unit's at minus two leadership from Ral. That's the sort of extent of this chemical warfare on that large scale. Whereas yeah, when you drill down it, to it... In would you agree that like it tends it. to get lost in like bucket-sized dice roll kind of thing? It just ends up becoming a, another statistic to add on to the results as opposed to where with Escher and say you're planning on t- using chem alchemy, you obviously you, you, you have rules for each separate component of the, um, the toxins and uh, stims. And then on top of that, you get to combine them and create unique bespoke ones. And then you get to kind of tie that into why your gang's using it, giving it to individual characters. And it just, again, it builds up something that obviously you're very focused on, which is the narrative aspect of the game. And it it, it becomes a lot richer and kind of, um yeah, in focus. It's like, oh, wow, I feel like I'm really affecting the game on a on a molecular level as opposed to it being these broad swathes of troops or or, or yeah like i say bucketfuls of dice that are rolling across the table yeah definitely like i think i'm sure that within the narrative of um, a 40k battle if you were a squad of dark eldar cabalites I'm sure that every single cabalite in that squad has got their own personal perfected poisons and elixirs and you know, deadly toxins that they've applied to their weapons. And when that unit opens up fire on a unit of Imperial Guardsmen, I'm sure each individual Guardsman is suffering in his own horrific way, depending on which Cabalite shot him. But when, like you say, that's unit-to-unit combat, it's harder to represent that unique influence of every single chem, drug, alchemy effect on the individual. I'm sure Fabius Bile has an individual setting on his you know, like, uh, null rod to perfectly agonize every individual target he comes up against he enjoy doesn't just always hit everything and move the two plus because he uses the same poison every single time yeah but it's it's got to be painted with the broader strokes um exactly simply down to the kind of the the logistics of a of a, a of a huge war um tabletop war game whereas when you're talking about it at that necromundan level with the escher gangs i know that you know the chem alchemy elixirs that my juve is going to be using are gonna probably not be quite as extensive or influential as the ones my gang queen is using and equally i'm not going to use the same kind of toxin to shoot a cordor ganger as i am to shoot a vat born goliath circa no absolutely so right um as obviously propagandist for um the weird sisters and um you've been with them a long time uh since uh at least um n17 when that dropped has the like it, just as a, a kind of initial reaction to house of blades dropping did that tie in immediately to what you want to do and where you imagined um the the gang kind of going and and, and and the direction that they would move in or was it like a huge surprise and you were like oh my god yeah what, what were your initial reactions to the book dropping so it was a little bit of both because I was surprised that chem alchemy was a thing and done in the way that it was when they first announced it 
because it was only in the Book of Judgment, not too prior to it, that he introduced the concept of the narco lord, crime rings, and the actual um, drugs and chemicals you can buy on the black market. Now, yeah. obviously, at the time, I was like, oh, great, this looks really exciting, and I can't wait to get to hand my hands on this, because this looks like the new way that I'm going to be able to interact with drugs and chems and all these toxins. I'm really looking forward to um, using the actual black market like friends on chems and firing them into enemy gangers in order to get them addicted. <laughs> so yeah. that they're then suffering <laughs> from those uh, negative effects across future campaigns, uh, like future campaign games. Yeah. So you know, I've got plenty of shots if I want to keep hopping up my juves or champions. Whereas if I get you addicted, but you don't have a supply, maybe yeah. you have to come to me to get it. It's one of the more interesting tactics I've heard in a while. <laughs> yeah, because all those black all those black market chems, they all have an upside and a downside. And the main downside is that if you don't take a shot of it, basically every game you're present in, when you're not under the effects of it, you're under massive negative effects. Well, yeah. you can take the chem injection weaponry, such as needle weapons, and I, you can load those shots and fire them to opposing gangers. Yeah, sure, fine. There and then, you've now got this frenzied berserker opposite you, but it's fine. Just jump across to the next ledge. He's not going to pass his initiative check. He's not going to be able to chase my, you. My one piece of advice for that, Tony, though, as a tactic, would be don't use it on corpse grinders. <laughs> because oh, yeah. the one thing that they're going to do is, all right, then we'll just get the friend zone collars, and you don't want them with those collars. Obviously, pick your targets. You know, use the right chem <laughs> for the right thing. I might be firing some Kalma at those corpse grinders instead. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so that was something that I was planning to experiment with. I like to go out of my way to include gear and weaponry that really plays into a style I want to play as opposed to what's necessarily the most efficient based on the house list. So, for example, I converted up a Escher grenade launcher ganger because I wanted to be using choke gas and fear gas grenades when yes. grenade launchers weren't originally on the house list. So it was going to have to be a trading post purchase. So it was going to be a commitment to get down that line to, you know, getting a champion or a specialist skilled up enough to use a grenade launcher, buying one from the Absolutely. trading post, and then buying the limited ammo supplies for gas grenades and so on, because it's going to be cool. And then House of Blades drops, and grenade launchers are in there on the house list now, and now you've got uh, chem alchemy to actually implement even more effects on those gas grenades and scare gas grenades. So yeah. it it's gone more in the direction of what I was trying to achieve but in a more direct Escher-specific way. Now that we've got the access to chem alchemy, this is what I would have loved the black market chem um, sort of selection to be. But I understand now, with hindsight, that that was going to be the specialism of Escher. So that uh... level of granular granularity to it makes sense for the chem house. Whereas if you're just trying to be some corridors who are trying to get some chems, they're just going to be able to get whatever they can get from the local dealer. Not necessarily whenever yeah. the chem cultists of House Escher have got you know cooked up. So I remember um, back just before um, House of Blades dropped, actually, and before we had all the previews of the units and, and stuff go up, that you started putting up the list of predictions because we mentioned it in the show. And you, you said about, oh, the chances of them bringing Death Maidens in is probably going to be quite strong because it's alluded to in some of this like story that we've seen elsewhere. And then, of course, lo and behold, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah, I was impressed with that when that actually happened. <laughs> um, I mean, I was basing that off the fact that, yes, Death Maidens had been referred to in the law of the previous Necromunda books, and the fact that Kira the Huntress, the um, 
a house agent, she actually mm-hmm. was a deaf maiden. That was like her whole deal was the fact that she keeps coming back and she always goes hunting the person who killed her. All right. Um, like even if you manage to kill her, she's still going to get you because she's going to come back and finish the job. <laughs> um, so I thought, hmm, maybe that's something they might introduce as this house specific champion. And then they did. Yeah, no, I think um, the development of that idea that they, because obviously they started with Kira, and and it's a great kind of, it's almost that Terminator, unstoppable, ever kind of moving forward. Do you know what I mean? Like the it follows kind of threat where it's just constantly on you. You never get any respite. You never get any rest. And I think the development of that with the with the with the drop of blades and how. Death Maidens became what they became. That's probably one of the standout um, things in the new book for me. I mean, I love Kim Alchemy, and I'm certainly going to be leaning into it with my girls. I mean, I've called them the Alchemy Mistresses, so it kind of, <laughs> you know, it suggests what they're about. But that's what it says on the tin, exactly. Really, <laughs> but but Death Maidens, I think, are, are, are a real standout for me within the book. I just think that it's got that horror aspect, um, that really pulls yeah. that darkness into the house because i think a lot of um on the surface and aesthetically you could write um escher off as quite um ostentatious and do you know what I mean fancy uh, and really there's there's a dark heart to escher and i think that death winds really capture that yeah definitely i mean i know again i like to imagine what the little backstory is of some of my characters and my you know my models and how they have a place in the gang and obviously moving forward most of my starting gang lists include one death maiden at least and in my case it's you know that very excellent combat virtuoso variant with stiletto sword and power knife i imagine her as being the more established death maiden within my particular gang the one who's either been assigned to us by the house or someone who perhaps was brought back quite a while ago and has since resolved her unresolved business and now she is just the you know the gang executioner the you know the the intimidation figurehead and so on but then on the flip side of that i love the fact that as we'll mention uh, with the one of the new hangers on and there's a the tactic card we discussed on the previous show that actually gives you the opportunity to add a deaf maiden to your gang when a particular gang member suffers a memorable death. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one. So because because that exists, I've built my second deaf maiden explicitly as that double venom claw sort of like intimidating combat monster, but with the intention that She's not always going to be the same particular character. This particular model is going to represent any given uh, ganger I lose in a campaign and who becomes a death maiden via those effects. And then in my head, she's going to be going hell for leather for whoever it was that killed her. So whichever gang actually put her down and she became the death maiden from that injury, every time there's a chance to take on that gang again, and in particular that fighter, she's going to be there and she's going to be going for them. And she's not going to be getting past this unresolved, unfinished business of, you know, taking vengeance upon her slayer before she's got to them. You know, once they're down and once they're six feet under, then she might be able to gain some semblance of self back and find her new place in the household. It sounds very much like you build a gang in a very similar fashion to me, because when I approached Death Maidens, um, I felt 
very much you're going to have varying levels of them you're going to have kind of freshly kind of resurrected they're resurrected for one job and then the body breaks down but I, 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 for myself i wanted to push that horror further and i figured that the the death maiden process the 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 project that the, the kind of Escher must have ran in order to get to this stage must have gone through several iterations and um and stages of development so i i designed a character called lady wrath um and, and name's forgotten because she's that old she's like she's almost desiccated do you know what i mean she's she's dried out apart from this this toxic um chemical cocktail that pumps through her veins and it's pumped in directly by a rig that's constantly attached to her back um she's completely silent and essentially she's kept in a crypt and brought out um for battles but she um and she, playing into the kind of whole acrobatic um, combat um, virtuoso style, I just imagine a pirouetting and tearing and dancing to us, essentially a melody of 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 the songs of the screams of all of her fallen sisters, and yeah, that <laughs> yeah again that, that when I'm building the model and when I'm planning on using the model in a campaign, it's that story that 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 makes makes it much more kind of um, rewarding for me to build and to play and, and any victories that those characters get are just even sweeter because they, they play into it it does dictate how i use them on a board as well i won't i won't do something that contradicts how i think that character would act which sounds very much like you're kind of planning for your um weird sisters yeah like for example that returned sister the one who you know was the gang queen or was the champion and has now been slain and turned into this new death maiden i plan on giving her the acrobatic skill that one that allows her to ignore enemy fighters when moving yeah because she's going to ignore every other fighter that isn't her target (laughs) so she is just going to move past them all in order to get to the target so it's an actual practical way to represent that 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 motivation within the game yeah no it's really cool man Exactly. Um, so yeah, there's like there's so many different things about Escher that I love that just feels more so than you know I'm the combat gang or I'm the shooty gang or I'm the religious gang. Do you know what I mean? It, it, there's this aspect to the house that just draws me in, and I just think is so multifaceted and has so many opportunities to create great stories with, and just to have real fun on the tabletop because. As they will talk about some stuff shortly, but just being able to make your opponents have to deal with unusual or unique circumstances, or you you basically you're attacking them in a different angle or using a different approach to something they're not used to encountering, and then having to make them think on their feet or deal with you know all these different potential problems. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, something that we said in one of the previous episodes uh, with the uh, new chemicals that they've got and the various different effects that they have. You never know what you're going to be going up against. To that end, do we want to talk about the the first of the new hangers-on for the uh, yeah sure for the Escher? So, funnily enough, um, as we've seen now with a couple of the House of books, there's some unique hangers-on for each of the um, gangs. And uh, some of them actually are accessible by other gangs but funnily enough none of the Escher ones are they've got two new unique hangers on first of which is the apprentice clan chemist so this is really the keystone component now to making 
um, chem alchemy work because as you've discussed previously every dose or stim or elixir that you buy from the chem alchemy tree obviously costs x amount of credits and it's effectively a one-use thing so that can be kind of a bit of a hard sell to think that you're spending all your credits on these ephemeral things which once they use they're gone well the apprentice clan chemist really helps with that so the main thing that she does is the experimental elixirs rule which basically means that whenever you buy an elixir for your chem alchemy she reduces the cost of that individual elixir by d6 times 10 credits and that's not just like you get that discount for a visit as it were to pick up all your chems that's per elixir yeah and considering the cost of those is what about i think some of the mixes we came up with were averaging around sort of 30 to 50 credits so d6 times 10 uh, down to a minimum of 10 then most of the time you're coming in at 10 if you're lucky yeah or you can take some of the really fancy gas ones that cost like 90 to 100 credits and you could be putting yeah, yeah. down to 50 to 40 you know so, absolutely um so she she weighs in at 75 credits herself and she comes with the fixer skill. So between giving you D3 times 10 credits per game and the fact that she's offering that D6 times 10 discount per elixir purchase, she's going to effectively pay for herself in one game, really. You know, as soon as you buy your first elixir and you've had your first fixer roll, you're probably breaking even. If not getting a little in the bank, to be fair, because sometimes it can work out really favourable. Obviously, not always, but I mean, there's a there's a very good chance that if you, even if you intend to lean into chem alchemy quite heavily, you could still be getting a few credits every every post game activation putting into your your stash. And and obviously, as we, as we know in Necromunda, the, the more credits in your bank, the better. Yeah, definitely, and especially like you see, if you're going to be leaning into the new alchemy stuff, then you're going to be burning credits from game to game, you know, just keep your supplies up. So mm -hmm. she really helps with that. I mean, she's not much of a, a combatant herself. She's basically a little sister, you know, um, so she's practically an Escher Juve, but she does come with a needle pistol. So, yeah, she she can be uh, testing out some of her latest concoctions on the enemy, but you probably want to keep <laughs> her at home unless she gets dragged into a defending it, scenario. Yeah. Um, but the other fun little rule she has, which will probably mostly come into play later on in a campaign rather than opening doors, is the last rights um, ability, which this is the one where if one of your gang's matriarchs or gang queen is killed, um, so this could be a memorable death or a critical injury, which you're then not able to save from the doctor, or possibly you just go to an inept one who doesn't manage to save them, um, then uh, you roll a d6. And if the result is equal to or lower than the number of advances that fighter has, then you may add a Death Maiden to your gang for free. Um, the new Death Maiden doesn't retain any of the dead fighter's equipment, injuries, or advancements, and is for all intents and purposes a new fighter. So the key thing there is that you have to roll equal to or lower than the number of advances that fighter had. So hence, if you get a fresh-faced, say, fresh-faced champion, but they don't technically have any advances when they start, so if they die, you don't have any chance of them becoming a Death Maiden with this. Whereas if you've got yeah. someone who's had five advances and they've you know become quite the experienced and veteran ganger, then you've got you know a five in six chance of them becoming a Death Maiden if they do get killed. But at that stage, you probably want to be keeping that fighter alive if possible. This is more like a consolation prize, really. Uh, yeah, 
I was going to say it's it's a bit of a Brucey bonus, isn't it? It's like ah oh, well, you have lost that person. You obviously you keep the gear, but that's a it's a lot of advancements to kind of to lose in one blow. He is a little sweetener, you know what I mean? You you you. It, it means that you're not pulling out maybe so many credits to get your gang viable again. It's yeah, it's yeah. just. I mean, it's what 115 credits for a death. Exactly. Fight, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you'll have to front some of the new gear for her, but you know, it's like you say, it's it's certainly a good consolation prize to the loss of a gang queen or matriarch. But as we were just discussing earlier, it creates a really cool narrative as well. You've now literally got this resurrected warrior who's come back from beyond death. You know, this is the sort of thing where if this Death Maiden then got killed in a future game by a memorable death or critical injury or whatever, as an arbitrator, I'd be really tempted to suggest pulling up some of those um, White Dwarf Resurrection arcs and uh, bring this person back again and just really have them, you know, just cross the veil constantly and every time they're losing more of their humanity and every time... By the time you get to those drawbacks from the White Dwarf Resurrections, she's really going to be warping the gang around her because of it. Yeah, no. that's true. Let's not forget those things that are in White Dwarf as well, because that just totally plays into all of this, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I just love this image of... It could even be... If you're talking like a really long, drawn-out campaign here, you could have started with a Jew who gained enough advancements to become a matriarch, who then dies, gets resurrected as a Death Maiden, who then dies and then gets brought back via a, a resurrection pact. And the story <laughs> arc of that character, that has to be immense. There has to be some really cool stories along that line. Yeah, that's a campaign I'd like to be playing in. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, Clan Alchemist. Um, basically, you can either start out the gates if you really want to get lots of Clan Alchemy first thing, but they're probably going to be like your second um, hanger-on pick up really because until you've got an established cash flow you're not going to be able to be buying lots of this alchemy anyway but once you do this just really makes it an affordable step without hampering the development of your gang over time so following up that lead there Tony if she's the second one that you're going to be picking up what's the first one well personally I always like to have a rogue doc on hand I do like I think starting out if you're having to pay for every doc visit that you make, then that really hampers your your cash flow in early stages of any campaign. And it doesn't take right. much to get to a stage where you've got two hanger on slots, so what you only typically need five rep, and then a spare 75 credits to get her in initially. So it could even be literally a couple of games in. It doesn't have to be long, but it, you've got to ask, if, it's, if she's a hanger on from day one, what spare credits do you have to actually be spending on alchemy? to That's true. make use of her. That's a good shout. But I would definitely be getting her as soon as feasible. Do you know what I mean? Like, I do think um, she is a high-priority pick for your hangers-on. Unlike the uh, the second hanger-on we've got, which, whilst I think is brilliant and makes for some really cool story moments, I think is probably one of the later hanger-on picks. But this is the new Shiver, who basically is a soothsayer. It's the uh, Escher fortune teller. Is she psychic? Is she not? Does she just ha- is she just in touch with the warp? Who knows? Either way, I've just got this a picture of this like haggled like like bent over old crone with a little crystal ball. That's all I can picture. <laughs> I could almost imagine this being like what a death maiden becomes once they become non combat able. Imagine if they just oh, went right. on for that long. 
Like, I'm not saying that would be the case of all of them, but I could just imagine this really, you say, sort of like haggard, crone-like figure. Well, what better image is there of that than a deaf maiden who's aged out 100 years? And even though oh, she's yeah. not dying, she's that, you know, withered and aged that she's uh, not really a, a effective combatant anymore. Or she's seen some things in her time. But um, in either case, that's just a little bit of, you know, personal perception of what I think that could be. But this could be someone as a... Uh, any age, really. This could be a juve that showed some little bit of psychic potential and they've become a shiver. Who knows? Yeah. But anyway. Again, very much a non-combatant ganger, really. You know, um, like, strength two, one wound, one attack, doesn't even have a weapon. In fact, it says equipment, has no equipment, no armor, oh, yeah. no nothing. <laughs> the only thing they get is the fearsome skill as a slight measure to try and stop someone from charging them because she's freaky. Is this old lady? Yeah, whether whether that's in the way she looks or just an aura she gives off, yeah, whichever yeah. plays into your kind of headcanon. So the benefit you get from keeping the creepy old lady around is the Sinisian's post-battle action that you can make. So added to the tally of things you can do, like you know, um, visit the doctor, go to the trading post, seek your equipment, all the rest of it. Um, if you've got a shiver, then you can choose this. Uh, Sinisian's post-battle action with a champion or queen or whatever. Uh, basically, um, that particular champion or queen uh, rolls on a 2d6 table and you get a bunch of interesting effects. And the majority of them are all typically some sort of bonus. However, the first one, if you roll that double one, your doom has been foretold and it's really unnerved um, the particular ganger that went to have their fortune told and they immediately go into recovery because they will not be showing up for the next fight because they are too um, unnerved about their probably survival chances I imagine at that point. Yeah. However that's really the only negative result so as long as you don't roll a double one then you know the tea leaves look good. Not using the Vansar dice for that then. <laughs> <laughs> no they're getting locked in a safe when it's time to roll for the shiver. Um, three to four we get the fates are unclear. Uh, choose one of the following characteristics leadership, willpower or intelligence. For the duration of their next battle the fighter performing this action may re-roll any failed checks made against the chosen stat. Oh. So this could be um, useful for a leader that's got um, the inspiring skill because then they can reroll leadership checks to make everyone else stay cool. It's also notably good for any Escher that's got a um, chemsynth because it lets you reroll intelligence checks. Um, so it has its uses. Uh, five to seven is favorable portents. For the duration of their next battle, the fighter performing uh, this action may reroll any hit rolls of a natural one when making ranged attacks. And may ignore the rules for stray shots against friendly and uh, friendly fighters, which um, I think is surprisingly strong. Yeah, that's a really good little uh, boost yeah. to have for a game. Yeah, that any any hit yeah. rolls. <laughs> it is only range throughout attacks, the whole battle, but any of them, yeah. Um, and right, just yeah. ignoring stray shots as well. So you can sit back behind <laughs> the line of your sisters, and you know you're not going to accidentally <laughs> catch any of them. Oh my god! Yeah, you just stick that on a heavy like champ or something. Christ. Yeah, I mean, that'd be pretty nasty with a heavy stubber behind, or, or even, um, yeah, sorry, like a heavy stubber or a plasma cannon or something stuck behind a a, a field of um, gangers or juves, like a meat shield, but you've got no chance of hitting them. But if anybody wants to hit you, they've got to take um, the stray shot rule or, or pass yeah. a curl check. Yeah, really, really solid. 
Um, and if you can uh, build that champion up to somehow make use of leadership, willpower, or intelligence roles, then you're pretty much sorted on this tree. Because that would be otherwise the only sort of not great thing for them if they don't have much to make use of it. But like I said, yeah. Chemsynth is an intelligence check. If you've managed to look out and get um, like a shooting skill, I think it's Ballistic Expert, that's an intelligence check. Stuff like that. Yeah, so a great boost. So a 8 to 9 is a great victory. If the gang of the fighter performing this Visit Shiver post-battle action wins their next battle, the fighter performing the action earns an extra D6 experience. Which is not bad, because that is, on the lower end of the scale, uh, a, a skill increase, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah, like for early a days. A skill increase, or, a stat increase, sorry. Yeah, or it's certainly going to you know, probably get you halfway there, even in later stages. Yeah. Um, it is dependent on you winning that next battle. So you could get this result and then get nothing for it if you don't win the well, next yeah. game. But, you know, D6 extra experience, nothing to be sniffed at. And no harm, no foul if you don't win. I mean, you, you exactly. didn't win. But yeah, there's no side effect. Yeah, it's not like you get a loss of reputation or similar, which is something you get with the most of these rules that are, if you win, get X bonus. But if yeah. you lose, here's a penalty. <laughs> yeah. So that is a, that's quite good. 10 to 11 is A Mysterious Stranger. Which is basically you get to hire a bounty hunter for free uh, for the next game, um, but the bounty hunter will automatically depart, so there isn't a chance of them hanging around. Um, nice. So yeah, that's again, it's a free fighter, free guns, um, and good ones at that because it's a, a bounty hunter. Um, and then if you roll a double six and you get that 12, you are foretold for fortune and glory. During the post-battle sequence of their next battle, the fighter performing this action may double the amount of experience they earn and may double the amount of credits and reputation their gang earns. Yeah, that, that is a pretty hefty bonus. It's a sexy result. That I'm very happy with that. If you landed a double uh, double six, that'd be so good. You'd be very yeah. And there's no losing that because you don't even need to win the battle in order to gain that you, you're just going to get that regardless so providing you get an experience and creds at the end of it anyway it's just a bonus yeah it's that you'll get to double whatever you do come out with now obviously if you win most scenarios will provide the winner with a larger payout well yeah. so yeah there's that incentive but even at a loss you'll still get you know um twice as much as what you were getting the shiver's an interesting one because she she weighs in at 100 credits so she's not the cheapest buy-in for a hanger in the world. Um, but I also think that she's one of these ones that fills out nicely once you've got a couple of hanger-on slots free, your gang's nicely developed, you can burn 100 credits on something like this, and you're always pretty much going to get a bonus, but it's not something that's going to be hugely game-changing. But it's also just really themed. And I also think that this is one of those purchases that I've never really come up with a direct term for it, but basically it's one of these things that helps you spend credits without pushing your gang rating up too high in order to then get too far ahead in a campaign. Now, yeah. I know yeah. that, that might sound counterintuitive, but obviously if you're spending 100 credits on a hanger-on who's probably not going to be showing up physically at each battle, she'll be just sat in your gang hideout. That's 100 credits you've managed to spend without actually increasing the gang rating of the fighters you're taking to that game. Which, if you feel like you're running away with things a bit much, or if you just want to splash out on some things to, you know, have some fun with and do some interesting stuff, but means that you're not just skyrocketing your gang rating and giving away a million underdog bonuses to your opponents, yeah. 
this is one of those nice places to spend credits without forcing your gang rating to go up. Yeah, it's a, it's a really tactical way of kind of improving your gang, but not incurring the penalties that are normally associated with being, say, the runaway kind of um, winner of the campaign. Yeah, I mean, go ahead if you want to spend those 100 credits, you know, towards a plasma cannon for your champion. Can do, but, you know, then you are going to have a plasma cannon champion, and that's going to draw some heat. <laughs> yeah. So, and you basically, if you, if you imagine that you're doing that um, in any given game against anyone with a lower gang rating, that's a free tactics card they're getting for that game. Which is going to be click if you've got a fucking plasma cannon, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Very true. <laughs> So yeah, it's one of these ones where I, I I like and endorse these kind of hangers on and this kind of spending, but it is definitely for mid to later game campaign spending. You know, you don't yeah. need a shiver out the gate. No, you'd you'd have to be kind of very um very concentrated on your and your narrative and not really thinking about your 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 mid to late game or mid to late campaign um tactics. Really, it, it's it's very much no. I'm going all in. I'm getting this as soon as I can. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's certainly kind of a, an, it's an unusual choice to invest those creds in when there are more useful kind of hangers-on to have in your entourage. No, definitely. And then, funnily enough, I've got one more honourable mention for a hanger-on that isn't actually in House of Blades. They're actually in House of Iron. All right. It's the, so, like I say, it's a little bit of a precursor to um, the breakdown you'll do on um, the House of Iron in the future, but it's the Bullet Merchant. So this is one of the new hangers-on, which isn't exclusive to Orlocks. They get a massive discount on hiring him, but he is available to any gang. Hmm. And essentially what the Bullet Merchant does is he gives any weapon that would have the limited weapon trait and changes it into the scarce weapon trait instead. So rather than these weapon, uh, these special ammunition rounds that you buy and they're one use only, and once they're gone, they're gone and you have to rebuy them, it turns them into scarce ones, which instead means that when you fire them, they're gone for that battle, but you keep them on your war gear list, so you'll get a one use of it every game. Yeah, which is pretty damn great. What's um, the cost for, um, for, for other gangs to run it? I don't have a House of Iron open in front of me, sorry. I actually don't know. <laughs> oh, give me so two seconds a... and I shall look that up then, because that's quite. Yes. I'm quite interested to find that out. I um, know that it's. Um, I believe he's triple the cost, whatever it is. Yeah, um, for a I, I know they get a sexy bonus on it. Um, hang on. Um, but in either case, whatever it is, it, it's damn worth it in the case of Russia because it turns things like gas shells for shotguns and bolters into scarce weaponry rather than one use only so then yeah, yeah if you've got that ability to put all your your chem alchemy stuff onto permanent gas shells for your bolters and shotguns that's a lot of options and then the same is true for gas and fear rounds of grenade launchers i wouldn't need to keep rebuying them every time i'd roll an ammo roll for them so um i've just looked it up there guys um it's 25 credits to um, House Orlock and 75 to anyone else. So still like a mid-range kind of hanger-on level. Or just just tipping over mid-range. Oh, same as uh, Alchemist, isn't yeah. it? So. Yeah. Like, I can imagine if you're in a position where you've got a chem alchemist and you've got a bullet merchant, then you spend 25 credits on buying your gas shells for your combi bolter and 
then you can get a D6 times 10 discount on the chem alchemy that you want for that gas shell. And suddenly you can be looking at basically every that initial purchase of the gas shell is probably paid for by the fixer roll on the alchemist. Mm-hmm. And then after that, every fixer roll is basically buying you a new dose for um, the gas shell. So you could end up with a gang queen who's got a combi needler who has gas alchemy rounds for the bolter gas shell that she gets once per game and also has toxic <laughs> alchemy rounds for the needler on the combi weapon. And suddenly yeah. you can be there firing standard shells, gas shells, standard toxic rounds, or toxic alchemy rounds. Makes yeah. a good argument for a combi bolter. Yeah, it does. Which I've just added to my gang. <laughs> I was wondering what to stick on my Escalator. <laughs> I love I love the combi bolter. And who cares if every time you fire one of those weapon profiles, you're practically running out of ammo for it, because you've got about five, six different profiles to go through before you're actually empty. Yeah, it's pretty. And that's fun. where your uh, your hangers on, like your uh, ammo jack and, and your bullet. What's it come into it as well? Well, so, just yeah. just getting common on every ammo type. That's that's immense. Yeah. That's really really just that on its own is is incredible. And then yeah, scarce. Get and getting scarce from um what you call it. Uh, it's not going in my head for some reason. Bullet merchant. Yeah, limited. Sorry, um, replace the scarce. Which is, yeah, it's just fantastic. Which is funny because a lot of people forget that if you've got a loot casket on the table, you can actually attempt to reload a scarce weapon once it's run out. Yeah. It's difficult because most scarce weaponry also has a high ammo roll, but you could be there firing multiple gas shells a game if you, you're really persistent on trying to you know make it work. And it doesn't cost that much once you get those hangers on. So like I say, it's, it's one of those ones that's a bit of a niche choice to definitely play into a particular style, but I know full well I'll be aiming to get a bullet merchant just to keep my grenade launcher stocked up with choke gas grenades without having to constantly keep rebuying it, and then lets me do lots of more fun stuff with alchemy. Yeah, kind of takes the onus off chasing one thing and allows you to concentrate on the other, or, or, or switching it around depending on your play style or, or your opponent for that game. Exactly. And then in addition to all your hangers-on, You've got the new Strong Alliances in the House of Blades. So looking back to the Gilder Alliances and the criminal organizations, there's two which are now associated with House Escher as having Strong Alliances. Um, So you mentioned um, before the show, Chris, that you're not overly familiar with how the alliances work. Do you know the general gist? Oh no, I, I know how they work. I've just I've never I've never been in a campaign that's used them ever. To be fair, by the time I'd gotten into the game and started playing, like um, got a couple of campaigns under my belt, everything just went to shit. So uh, yeah, <laughs> by the time like all of these new, uh, before I got a time to delve into the different kind of additions and 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 expansions, I'd I'd only really played like the main campaign style and 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 skirmish games. So yeah, I've never never had the need, or or it's never arisen in a game that I've been involved in. The alliances have been a thing. Well, I think having things like the strong alliances is maybe going to push them more to the foreground, and especially since it looks like Games Workshop is going to be making efforts to release models for the various alliances and organizations moving forward. And I think that's going to create a better ease of access to using them in campaigns yeah. for a lot of people. Um. 
So the first of which is the Strong Guilder Alliance Thresher, and that is actually with the Water Guild, which I suppose kind of makes sense when you consider that, you know, water is probably a main component of a lot of chemicals. You would think so, yeah. <laughs> As with all alliances, when you enter into it, then you get typically a strong bonus, uh, a strong drawback, the ability to field the allies' combat party, um, and if you do things that go against the interests of the alliance, then you have to test the alliance, which is rolling on a table and adding a plus one to it for every time you've previously had to test it. So you, the more you keep pissing off your allies. The more chance of them is a turning on you and you suffering the consequences, essentially, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, the main thing that causes you to test the alliance is if you choose to ignore the drawback whenever it's called upon to be activated. Because you can choose to be like, no, I don't want to suffer that. But if you do, you have to test the alliance. So, the first benefit you get from allying with the Water Guild is that you get a free slopper. Yay. So, nice. you know, you get that six-up chance to recover in recovery fighters before every game. Where it really shines, though, is that if you actually have a slopper, then it increases that roll to a 5+, plus instead of a 6. Which, I believe, is the only way to improve a slopper roll. Um, apart from Mr. Bigby Crumb, I believe he has or possibly had some bonus to uh, <laughs> yeah, had uh, slopper rolls. So that's quite good because it's surprising, especially if you're getting up to a 5+. plus. One in three of your fighters in recovery are going to actually be fighting in that game when you didn't expect them to be, so that's cool. But secondly, you get to field the Nautician Siphoning Delegation in any game where if your rep is low enough, the guild deem you need help and they'll show up. And that consists of um, three fighters, which is the Master Nautician and a Siphonite, who are basically very on-brand Escher allies because they're sort of fast, agile, needle-weapon-toting, like, human-scale fighters. Um, and then the Sub-Nautician, who's basically an Ogryn underboss. So he's, he's like an Ogryn in a diving suit. Nice. Um, so he's just a big, you know, burly combat monster. Yeah, so the... The Subnautican is, you know, strength 5, toughness 5, free wounds, um, like, just big punching fists. He's basically just a big, like, say, ogreen brute, basically. The Master Nautician has Step Aside and Overseer, um, the Cybernite, the Siphonite has Dodge, and the Subnautician has Berserker. So, you can see where he generally steps in and just beats on anything that tries to get near his boss. There was an interesting thing that I noticed, though, when going through the House of Blades stuff. Mm -hmm. And it is, again, about chem alchemy. So, obviously, it says if you use a toxin or gas um, enhancement, it says this fighter may use this on a piece of equipment they are equipped with. The stims that you take to actually enhance the fighter themselves... They say the fighter can take a dose or could administer the dose to a friendly fighter. It doesn't say it has to be an Escher one. So you can apply the stims to your ally fighters, like Bounty <laughs> Hunters and the Guild Associates and so on. Right. So there's a couple of interesting stims you can apply to things, such as this big hawking Ogryn brute, who particularly benefits from things like Bad Blood. Which is the um, the stim where whenever he suffers a flesh wound or a wound, um, the enemies that wounded him have to pass an initiative check 
or be hit by a toxin attack. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the obviously, blood splashback, yeah. Yeah. Now, typically, most ashes are only toughness free with, you know, one to two wounds. That's not a lot of splashback. But if you decide to stick some bad blood in your toughness five free wound ally, he's got a lot of blood to be splashing around. Yeah. Yeah, that's a nice. Um... It's a nice way to utilise the, the stims in a not necessarily straightforward way, definitely. Yeah, and then similar things for like Hyper and Jolt, which are very combat-oriented things. You're suddenly turning the Submortician into having like D6 charge distance instead of D3, or suffering minus one to hit because of it. It's like, eh, it's fine, so I'm just going to plus, who's going to hit on fours anyway with a lot of Berserker attacks. So there's there's some cool options there. And obviously, this could also be applied to any allied guild or criminal organization doesn't have to just be strong alliances so i haven't looked into it for any other examples but i'm sure there's probably some allies that would have some really fun things they could do if they get a, a cheeky dose of some Escher stims oh yeah it's definitely worth people spending a little time going through the um the hangers on allies bounty hunters anything that can be classed as a friendly fighter in a game and just just having a little kind of chart next to them thinking right well these are what my chems do these are what their skills are, what they're good at. I wonder what happens if I add this to this. I want, and it just makes for that whole like chemistry set kind of fail again, doesn't it? And again, it feeds back into the whole um, chem alchemy, chem alchemy uh, narrative. I mean, I find it entertaining the idea that there might be some uh, injection ports on an ambot. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose if you were just pu- pumping it straight into the uh, ambul's brain that's lodged inside, that would be... <laughs> I-, I could go for that. Sorry, that's just going to be hilarious if, when I finally get around to finishing my Hello Kitty Ambot that I'm building at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you building that for your Escher specifically then, or is it just... Uh, it was just one that I wanted to build, and I think with the idea that I've got for my next Escher gang, which everyone will know by now, is the uh, Nurgles, um, where it's like the Nurgle-tainted uh, Chaos Escher, and... Um, yeah, I don't think a bright pink ambot with uh, lightning claws and a Hello Kitty head is going <laughs> to really fit in with that, but I think it's just going to be funny anyway. It's funny because I've, um, I've had serious ideas recently of doing a um, Zinchian corrupted Goliath gang called oh. the um, the Cult of Change, but change is spelt <laughs> like chains. Yeah, yeah. Just the fact that it's Zinch as well. So. I like the idea Goliath. of it. it just seems like the weirdest combination. Well, in my mind, they're obsessed with the mutation factor of Zinch. So that whole growth and change and mutating oh, into yeah, the yeah. largest, biggest, powerful mutant they could be. Who who else could possibly enhance the growth and mutation that Goliath are into than the Lord of Change yeah. himself? Get a cow's head on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so back to the Water Guild. Um, so yeah, you get some interesting allies you can do fun stuff with. Um, but then the other thing you get as a bonus is the it's the fun ability they have in the post-battle sequence. Let me just find it. Yeah, Water Harvest. Is it the Water Levies? Yeah, no, it's not the Water Levies. So the Water Levies is the drawback. Oh. Where in any scenario that your gang uh, um, gains any credits as a scenario reward you have to pay yeah. the guild d3 times 10 credits uh, yeah, because basically they're taking a cut of the um the profit it's like a tithe isn't it yeah, for yeah. your for your supply so clean kitty, water yeah. oh no that's drawbacks as well isn't it yeah that's that, that, that's the general ally stuff of if you've got an ally and you get the chance to pick a scenario there's a chance yeah. that you might have to do one dictated by your guild ally 
Oh, yeah. So yeah. that just dictates what mission you play, but it doesn't have a drawback in the mission. But that's kind of like universal to all the guild allies and the criminal organizations. Um, if you don't want to pay the type, uh, the water levy dough, you can test the alliance and keep your D3 times 10 credits if it's important. Whereas the water harvest ability is you get plus one to the roll to determine if an enemy fighter is captured at the end of the battle if the master nortician has not gone out of action. And you add an additional one for every other member of the siphoning delegation. So you gain between plus one to plus three on your capture roll if your allies have survived the battle, basically. And if an enemy fighter is captured this way, they may be sold to the guilders for their full value in credits immediately before the captured fighter's gang can attempt a rescue mission. Huh. So, because the idea is you don't need to sell them to the guilders. The guilder that wants him is right here. It's the guy who's just slapped the collar on him and now drained all the water out of his body. Going very tank girl. <laughs> yeah. So you that get would piss volume. me off immensely if somebody pulled that on me like that because you don't <laughs> even get a chance to kind of fight off um, to like try and get them back. Oh man, that would sting like a bitch. That that's, yeah. yeah, but you'd be getting them back with them looking more shrunken than a death maiden. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You get one opportunity, and that is that at that moment in that post battle, if you, as the player who had your fighter captured, if you're willing to pay the full value bounty to the water guild, not not to the player who has the water guild as an ally, they don't get your credits. It's just paid off to the guild itself. You, they won't do it. They'll basically release them because yeah. they're getting as much cash value out of you as they would have done out of the water from uh-huh. your fighter. I will agree, though, that this is something that I feel use with caution if you want to keep friends and you want to keep being invited back to campaigns. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, sure, maybe they don't mind if you manage to get hold of a 30 credit juve and you're in some for 30 credits, or they're happy enough to pay the 30 credits to keep them because they've got some skill ups or something. You know. But if you suddenly, in like the second game of the campaign, snag the opposing leader and they don't have 260 credits left to save him and they don't get a chance to rescue him, your arbitrator's probably going to have to step in and help out that other gang because uh, that is a harsh blow to take straight away. So, To be fair, it... Any point in a campaign, that's going to stink. That's going to really sting. And the thing is, with those resurrection rules that they put in White Dwarf, I'm not sure that necessarily even applies to that situation. Well, no, because she's not dead. She's just been sold off, hasn't she? Yeah. But, but she's now a raisin. She's got the water. She's an ossified husk. <laughs> so, yeah, like, maybe, you know, if, say, the opponent you've just captured a fighter from had previously captured one of yours and you failed a rescue attempt and they sold them off to the guilders, then maybe it is just a payback. So I think use with uh, use with caution, but it it's undeni- undeniably a powerful effect because you're getting full credit value of an enemy fighter just for capturing them, which you're getting bonuses to that role. So it's very strong in game terms. It's just that question of how many friends do you want to literally suck dry here? Yeah. So, by comparison, whereas I think the Water Guild has a lot going for it, um, and obviously being a strong alliance of Esher means that you can ignore the first time you have to test the alliance, the criminal organization they have a strong alliance with is the Cold Traders, which, unfortunately, I just think is a bit boring by comparison, and not even really that strong. It's changed since how the Cold Traders were originally written in the Book of Judgment. Basically, Previously, you could have had a a discount of two rarity on any Xenos weaponry um, that you attempted to get from the black market. 
So it made mm. all Xenos weaponry easier to access. Um, and you had the ability to um, get given a random Xenos weapon for your gang leader when you formed the alliance. Yeah. Free. It was random, but it was free. Now it's become rather bland. You don't get to do any of that. And instead, if you have an alliance with the core traders, all it means is that you can buy sling guns and armor weave for your queen and matriarchs. That's it. Uh, no, what I will agree with you that that is slightly less exciting. I think that this is hugely indicative of the House of Books. It's taken away power creep. It's taken away those ridiculous kind of things that are just going to blow a campaign away in your favour. That, that to me, is it's good. It's a perk. But it's not just going to... You're not getting hold of some... Because some of the Xenos weaponry is so OP. It's crazy. And I think it's a nice balance to find. Personally, I'm I'm not arguing that it's a lot less interesting. And it's a lot less exciting. But I think that this speaks to what GW are doing with the House of Books. And, and from what I'm hearing from people with 40k as a whole... With, the, with all of the new um, 9th edition... As, as as books are being dropped, they're handing a lot of nerfs out to a lot of factions, which are frustrating a lot of tournament players or people who've, who've been with a uh, like a, a chapter of Space Marines for a long time. They're finding that they're getting a lot of weaknesses added, but they're also being given a lot of other options. And I think that this speaks to that perfectly. It's like you don't just get a, a randomly awesome kind of game-changing gun. You get it. Sling gun's not a bad gun, and the armor weave's pretty decent. And you're getting it at a not ridiculous price, but still, it's not. It's not just gonna. You're gonna roll something crazy and just plow through the game with it. That, yeah, I mean, personally, the same same token. You've got the weapons still available to you. You just have to pay for them. Oh yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. One of the things that I noticed was that the sling gun isn't even an illegal weapon. It's just a rare weapon, so you don't even have to be allied with the cold traders to get access to it. You don't even have to be an outlaw gang to get access to it. You can just, as a lawful gang, attempt to make that um, cool check, I think it is, to find the black market. And if you get a, like a, a rarity 10 roll, you can just buy a sling gun, and the enforcers don't even care if they catch you with it because it's legal. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you say, armor weave is just mesh armor that's a bit better because it can't be modified to worse than a six plus. And a sling gun is basically a shorter range bolter with better AP but worse damage. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I've made a note of here is that if you really like sling guns, then this is the alliance for you. <laughs> yeah. For the hiver that absolutely must have a sling gun in their gang. Yeah, I mean. The funny thing about it as well is, other than just getting the ability to buy the war gear, there's no other benefit. So, in theory, once you've bought the war gear, you don't lose it if the alliance breaks. They don't come and take it off you. <laughs> so, you could just piss them off to no end and not care about maintaining the alliance because you've already got what you need out of them. They let you in the shop and you bought the thing. It doesn't matter if they ban you from the shop now. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, and the, the drawback to say that what you're getting access to is a sling gun... The drawback is that if you have their combat party, the shore party, join you for a game, then in your next game, you have to have a random fighter miss that game. Yeah, it's a bit yeah. a bit of a sting in the tail, really, isn't it? 
and the Shaw Party itself isn't even that interesting because the Cold Trader comes with, you guessed it, a sling gun <laughs> and an armor weave. Um, but then his mate, the Bosun, is literally a guy with mesh armor and a shotgun. And then they come with two like ogreen brutes who have fighting knives. So they don't even have any of the exotic alien weaponry themselves. Do you know what I mean? It's like you just get a guy with a shotgun and two big ogreens. Now, if you want two ogreens in your gang, say, you know, you're playing Cordor, Escher, Talak, whatever, and having a pair of ogreens is just something that's going to help augment your playstyle, then sure, go for it. But Ogrins of Knives is not why I came to the exotic alien technology trader. No, and I think it surprised um, quite a few people when the when we found out where the stronger and better alliances were, and for water to be the kind of the main one, it makes sense when you when you talk about water as a base for all the chemical concoctions. But we also know that Escher trade in Xeno um, fauna regularly they crossbreed it they genetically modify it they they, they they wear skins of rare animals it would have seemed to have feed into this kind of whole sneaky um black market xenos dealer that maybe there was some tie-in with that but they did seem to just yeah that 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 was a real um left of center for me it caught me off guard i was like oh that's what i would have expected was maybe access to different kind of creatures or, or, or getting creatures for cheaper through it you know so you're buying your, your fear cats etc it seems to work better narratively than it does as a practical alliance if you see what i mean oh yeah yeah no definitely yeah completely agree i, I think the same i would have expected the cold traders alliance of Escher would have been about off-world creatures and exotic uh, pets and stuff and it just doesn't seem represented it is no. what it is and like i say if you like sling guns and you like ogrins then ally with the cold traders but otherwise, you don't get much Xenos tech from them. No, nope, I, I can, yeah. Certainly one of the more lacklustre alliances. Especially for the drawbacks that you get with them, I think. that. Yeah, it seems like a heavy drawback for not much reward. But mm-hmm. like I say, you don't actually have to deal with it because you can just keep testing that alliance until yeah. they... <laughs> I think it's hilarious if it's like... Test the alliance. Like, oh no, we pissed them off. What does that mean? It means you don't get the benefits of our alliance for the next game. But so I, I can't buy a sling gun when I already have one. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I've really learnt my lesson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, however, from let's say something less interesting to something very interesting is the brand new noble house that you can ally with. Um, so again. Accessible to all gangs, but is a strong alliance for House Escher, and that is the Noble House Ulanti. So the first thing is that because of noble intrigues, they're happy to ally with lawful or unlawful gangs. You know, they've got their hands in every pocket, and they don't really care who they work with so long as it benefits the house. So, first of all, that you know that means anyone can sort of access the assistance from House Ulanti. But the the benefit is really straightforward. It's credits. And lots of them. So you just get lots of excessive wealth and support from your benefactor. And basically, um, in every post-battle sequence, um, you get 2d6 times 10 credits added to your you know, credits for that game. Which is probably, in a lot of scenarios, going to be more than what the scenario reward was worth. Yeah. 
yeah, it's a nice little um, financial stimulation package going on there with them. Yeah. Which, if you're wanting to invest a lot in chems, is exactly. uh, kind of making sense. Yeah. This is the next part of that, like, um, sequence Tony's of things. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that, that sequence of things that just really built into um, chem alchemy. So if. If you're getting 2d6 times 10 credits from House of Lanty every game and d3 times 10 credits from a fixer, who then, uh, sorry, from the fixer skill on a chem alchemist, who then gives you a d6 times 10 credit discount on every elixir you purchase, then if you just funnel those funds into your alchemy, on average, you can probably get two 80 credit elixirs or three 60 credit elixirs per game. Well, I don't know what the uh, statistics is for rolling an eight on two d six, but if you do manage to roll that, like, so, so you start your gang literally going, okay, they are allied with um, House Yolanti, then your end of your first game, you roll and you get eight, so that's eighty credits. That's instantly bought you a, 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 an alchemist. Yep. You know what I mean? So it's straight away you can just get onto the chemical game. So then, game two onwards, um, you've got an average of 90 credits per game because you're getting an average of 70 from House Alanti and an average of 35 credits, call it, um, per discount. Uh, So, yes, you get an average of 70 credits from Alanti, an average of 20 credits from your chemist, and then you're getting an average discount of 35 credits per elixir. So, like I say, you can really be looking to pick up two to three elixirs per game and you're not actually affecting your cash flow because everything else you would do like every other gang to increase your gang development is still happening this yeah. is all extra cash you're just funneling into your alchemy and it might even be that you use all three of those elixirs every game so in your next game you've got no elixirs again because you've used them all in the one you've just played so it might it's not like you're going to be stockpiling loads of alchemy stuff because you're going to be using it but at the same time, you're not bankrupting yourself in order to use the key gang feature of the House of Blades. Yeah, and you're not sacrificing dock visits or trade and post visits, etc., etc. Yeah, and you're not just funneling 2d6 worth of credits into making your gang incredibly wealthy and advanced compared to everyone else. The other benefit you get is that um, you can bring along their little combat party, which is the court advisor and her mirror mask, which we'll get to in a minute. So... This is um, during the pre-battle sequence. You can add them to to your gang. What I think is particularly funny is if you're facing an enemy allied with another noble house or a criminal organization, you have to bring the court advisor and the mirror mask along um, or test the alliance because they're busy dealing with these inter-noble house politics that are going on. So if there's another noble house stirring up rackets in this area, then Alanti has to try and get in there and make sure that their interests are protected. Yeah. Um, so Whilst we're kind of on that topic, and this is kind of a side note, really, anybody else getting a uh, Josh Whedon kind of vibe from those drawback titles? Curse Your Inevitable Betrayal and Bored Now, which I'm sure has turned up several times in the Buffy series. I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the other part of the, like you said, the I'm Bored Now rule is that one where, because... Atlantis Alliance is so fickle and they're just so likely to cut you off at any given time for something completely beyond your control because they're just disinterested. It means that whenever you roll those 2d6 to get those credits, if you roll a double, you have to test the Alliance. 
So you've got a good chance that every other game you're going to be straining that alliance more and more, and then yeah. you'll get to that point where you don't get the benefits for the next game. So you're not going to get that two d six credits. And then if it gets strained enough, it'll break, and then you don't get the alliance bonus at all. Now, the drawback uh, of breaking the alliance we'll get to in a minute, because first I want to tell you about the actual Volante Courtier and the Mirror Mask. So yeah. these are the two combatants that join you in a game. And they are, for all intents and purposes, more or less identical. Stat line, equipment, gear. It's basically just a couple of skills that vary. Both of them are pretty efficient combat um, fighters. You know, they both come with a power sword and needle pistol. They're both um, like two attacks apiece, weapon skill three plus. Like, they're not bad. They're they're atypical Escher duelist, really. Strength three, power sword, lots of um, attacks. Yeah. Now, the courtier, she has the counter attack and step aside skills. So, for starters, She's got, you know, a power sword she can parry with. She's got step aside and a three plus initiative, so she's got a good chance of avoiding a couple of hits. And for every hit you miss, she gets an extra attack when it comes to reaction attacks. Yeah. On top of that, she has a unique ability unique to her called Duelist, which is basically yeah. always strike first. It's such a cool little skill. She takes a reaction attack before you've actually resolved your attack, which is just so nice. <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, if you if she gets charged, then she gets to fight first before the charging fighter, which I looked at it initially and thought, well, what's the use of counterattack then? Because she does a reaction attacks before they've had the opportunity to miss. But it's obviously for ongoing combats, as it were. It's if they use the fight action as opposed to the charge action. Yeah. So in late, if they're in an, a protracted duel, then they get to go. You'll strike in activation order, and every miss they make, they make, she gets an extra attack. So she's really good. Now both her and the mirror mask have a displacer field as well, because I think it's a fun little note that they don't actually have armor either of them. They don't wear armor. They've just got displacer fields. Hmm. So they've always got that. I think it's five up save, but if they pass it, they get randomly moved like D6 inches or whatever, because they're physically teleporting that short distance in order to avoid the attack. Am I making it up, or in my mind, am I remembering it correctly that it's something to do with the strength of the attack that they get that's the distance they get moved, or something like that? Possibly. I know that from a law point of view, it's meant to be converting the kinetic energy that would have hit them into um, light energy that transports them. So the harder they get hit, the further they go, (laughs) even though they're teleporting. Um, so that might be a thing. I, I can't remember the exact details of this place if you're offhand, but it's funny and effective. Um, Especially when you're on a multi-level <laughs> map. Oh yeah, you want to make sure, ideally, you've got some grab shoots or other falling protection, just in case yeah. you get a teleport off the ledge. Um, so the thing that's then different about the mirror mask is whereas the mirror mask doesn't come with counter-attack, sidestep, or duelist, uh, they instead have nerves of steel. But they also have a unique ability um, called many faces. So this is when the mirror mask activates, 
they may swap positions with the Ulanti Courtier regardless of where the two fighters are on the board, including if the fighters are engaged or prone. And the Mirror Mask may take its actions as normal. So, yes, yeah, brilliant. Really, really powerful. It's like the reverse card in Uno. It's like, ah, you thought you were fighting me, but really you're fighting me. <laughs> but I love the idea that, say, someone charges into the courtier. She strikes first. She doesn't quite kill them because, say, they're fighting something like a Goliath leader or something pretty intimidating. Um, she does some damage. Carries out she, the rest of the attack. Yeah, she injures them, takes a wound or two off, whatever. You know, parries out the rest of the attacks. She survives. She's just engaged with them. Then you activate the mirror mask, they switch places, and then the mirror mask gets to strike at them because he's just engaged at the start of his activation. So then he fights the Goliath leader and stabs him up again. Yeah. And just to just to pile onto that even more, these two uh, fighters, I think, make a brilliant um, choice for the bait and switch tactics card. The one. Oh where... yeah. Yeah, the one where you can remove an activation marker from any of your fighters and, and give, give an activation else, yeah. marker to one who doesn't currently have one, which could be to the mirror mask to allow for a second activation in the same turn, at which point they could switch back with the courtier again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a nice little trick. I like that. That's really I like the cool. idea that, say, the pair of them are in two combats on different sides of the board and the mirror mask knows he needs to go kill the thing that's fighting the courtier. He activates, switches places, kills the thing the courtier was fighting. Then you use your tactics card, give the mirror mask another activation, activate him again. He switches back with the courtier and then stabs the thing he was actually fighting originally. And the courtier is now not having to worry about the thing she was fighting because it's already been killed by her bodyguard. I mean, reasoning behind it be damned, just as a visual uh, in my head of how that would work, of them literally like switching backwards and forwards between each other. Um, as they're having a sc- two independent scraps. That just looks amazing. That's yeah. like film quality stuff going on. Right totally now. cinematic, I, yeah. I get very um, Zero from Borderlands vibes. Yes, yeah. With it, like him sort of teleporting. Throwing a couple of haikus and, and you're spot on. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, I think narratively it's meant to be the fact that one, they're uh, using technology and like uh, falsehoods and stuff to physically appear a lot like their charge. So the mirror mask is creating a physical um, conundrum for anyone trying to harm the courtier. They don't know which one of them is really the courtier and which is the mirror mask. Mm. And secondly, I assume that this many faces ability from a, a practicality point of view is probably something to do with linking the displacer fields so that they're actually displacing into each other's location rather than... Yeah. Um, you know, narratively being who's the mirror mask, who isn't, they could be anywhere at any time. I think they are physically teleporting, and they're doing that because they both happen to have displacer fields, which is a very coincidental piece of equipment to have on two fighters that have this shared ability. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it kind of puts a pseudo scientific reason in for them being able to to activate that ability. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. So. Allying with House Alanti gives you lots of credits and two very deadly, very cool fighters who are ready to, you know, basically just mess up opposing gangs at a given's notice. However, the drawback to having allied with House Alanti is the inevitable betrayal. So this is, if ever you do lose a battle, you have to test the alliance. So between 
every battle you lose and every two every double on the two d six credits causing you to have um your alliance be tested ulanti don't tend to hang around as an alliance for long, and when inevitably that alliance breaks, there's an additional penalty, and that is if the alliance is broken, the gang's most recent opponent i.e. the gang they lost their battle against, may form an alliance with House Ulanti for their next battle, even if it already <laughs> has an existing alliance, after which the alliance of House Ulanti is automatically broken, and then this does yeah. not trigger the inevitable betrayal special rule. So whoever beat you and showed you up, House Ulanti go, you know what, them. I'm, I'm going to go work with them, and my first thing that I do when I'm working with them is I'm going to get payback on you. Right? In theory, when the way this practically plays out in a Necromunda campaign is that if you, lo- if you lose that battle and your alliance is broken, it means that the person who just beat you, they get the courtier and the mirror mask to fight for them in their next game, and they will get 2d6 times 10 credits at the end of that game. But because you're playing a Necromunda campaign, the next person they play against is probably not going to be you. Yeah, it's crazy. So it's, it's fun as well. I love the <laughs> fact that it's like, oh, I pissed off Elanti and I broke my alliance because the Bansar player beat me. Oh no, what a shame. Now the Cordor player is going to have to deal with a harder fight because of it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what, what's my penalty? That, that other gang gets some money. It's not even really that much of a drawback. Yeah, sure, your alliance is broken, you're cut off, and you're not going to be able to ally with anyone else until the end of that cycle. But it just seems so funny to me, and possibly like the most Necromunda thing ever, that you pissing off this noble house means that they go pick a fight with a third party who's not even involved in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's the whole kind of web within a web within a web of like yeah just nobody ever knows who is really aligned to anyone for any real length of time yeah you're absolutely right sorry i've just re- like gone over the wording of that again to make sure i was getting it right in my head and yeah and it says uh may form an alliance with house yulanti for their next battle there's no guarantee it's going to be with a person who's just lost yulanti it could be with any other random person in the campaign yeah it's like, oh, sorry, mate. I'm just letting you know that I lost my game against this you know, harsh Vansar gang that we all know is currently steaming away with the campaign. So now, when you play them next, it's going to be an even harder fight for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's class. And it's the, the beauty of that is it's not a friend killer mechanic because there's no malice or you can't aim that at anyone. Do you know what I mean? Unless you... you deliberately try to lose your alliance for whatever reason you know and but yeah it's that you, you haven't done that specifically to to punish somebody horrifically like with the um having your leader um kidnapped and having to buy them back for full price or they're just gone yeah that's that that's really fun it's thematic and nobody can get too pissy about that yeah it's um different to the other alliances that you can get as well because with other ones you can deliberately try and drag it out by playing with the rules but with this one it's like you know you get collect income you roll a double you've got to test it anyway yeah so you 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 potentially could build up that um number of times that you've tested the alliance very quickly in a campaign yeah i think it's funny how the drawback of alanti is you have to test the alliance so you can't 
bypass that drawback by testing the alliance. <laughs> Which is yeah. the thing you do with most drawbacks. The drawback is itself an alliance test. So you're going to be making more alliance tests with this house than almost anyone else. Because the actual drawback is when the alliance inevitably breaks. So it's the first instance where we've seen it where the alliance breaking is kind of baked in as being inevitable. Yeah. But it just, yeah. like say, feeds into that whole, um, like how... Capacious they are. Flighty and, yeah, exactly. End of game one, you roll, you lose it. You have to test your alliance. You then collect your income because you you managed to survive it. You, you roll a double. You have to test your alliance. That's twice you've had to test it within the first game. Yeah, exactly. So then the last thing we're going to talk about today is the um, like the Escher terrain features that are coming as part of the House of Blades book. So we know all the various House of books have been starting to introduce some gang specific terrain war gear or equipment that typically you can set up in the deployment zone or in like the no man's land between deployment zones and um, as you can imagine some of the Escher stuff is tied to gas and toxic stuff what a surprise but I have to say one of the things that I didn't see coming very ironically is the uh, some of the hidden traps that they've got access to because this was um, something that is very cool and very tied to the house of Blades title of this yeah. whole thing with the blade cages and the decapitators. So I'm going to start with those because I think that they're some of the most unique things in the Asher Terrain stuff and something I personally am really looking forward to using because this is just a whole other example of how to mess with opponents and make them approach the battle in ways they wouldn't normally think about because they have to be cautious or they're dealing with threats in from unexpected angles. In this case, probably the floor straight up. So is this how you became known as Tony Board Control Roads? This plays perfectly into that then, does it? Yeah, they're very much known as the Toll Roads. There's Blade Cages and Decapitators use this hidden traps mechanic. So you can buy these from the trading post with various trading post rules of like 9, 10, 11... Um, gas canisters are common. We'll get to those shortly. So, as far as I can tell, and I think this is the case of all the terrain features for the household books, once you sort of buy this thing and it's added to your gang stash, it's just sort of like a permanent war gear feature that you have access to for any games in which you would like to use it. It's not like once you've deployed it in a game, it's then disposed of and done with. It's not a one-use thing. So, I think they're a bit of an investment. And they're not a bad little investment then are they no that's that's pretty cool i'd never i've not realized because i've not used them again i've not used anything out the new books yet so sorry i was gonna say as, as a corpse grinder um i've used traps before and uh as a result they've been very very useful in controlling the board as tony's pointed out so does the corpse grinder stuff that you're talking about does that use the same sort of like six markers system for hidden traps is it something similar it's not that complicated because this takes it to like a whole new level. But what yeah. you do get is obviously the traps, which goes onto your your stash, and then you can assign them to fighters, and you get to set them up anywhere uh, on the board at the beginning yeah, so of the the game. So you can literally force people to go. Oh, I don't really like the idea of going over there. There's a whole bunch of traps, so it's a very visual thing. It's not a case of you don't know whether it is or it isn't. But um, as I say, it's kind of taking it to a next level. Yeah, so this is a similar baseline concept where if you're using any blade cages or decapitators, if you're deploying them for that game, you place six markers anywhere outside of the opponent's deployment zone. 
could be in your own turf, could be in no man's land. And if you've got, say, two uh, blade cages, you would secretly denote which of the two are the actual blade cages, and the other four markers are fakes. Um, they're just... It's not known if that is something hazardous or not, or if it's just a, a dud or a fake trap or whatever. So you set up these six markers, regardless of how many real traps you have. And every time an enemy fighter, and it does specify enemy fighters, so you know where the traps are, your your fighters know how to avoid setting them off, they can just move past them with impunity. Every time an enemy fighter moves within two inches of a marker, they have to make an initiative test. If they pass the test, nothing happens. The marker's left where it is, the fighter continues on their way, they've not triggered it. If they fail the test, you reveal the marker. Now obviously if it's a fake, nothing happens. And if it's real, then they're hit, as it were, by either the blade cage or the decapitator, whatever it is. So it's interesting that even if it's a fake, they have to fail the initiative test to reveal that it's a fake. Yeah. So it hangs around. And it does specify as well that, say, you've only got one actual trap in effect. If they reveal the real trap, you leave the remaining markers because the opponent doesn't know how many traps are in play. Yeah, because it makes sense that they wouldn't have just been given that knowledge from Uncover and One, regardless. Yeah, The rest of them could all be still live traps for all they know. If the initiative test is failed and a marker is revealed to be um, a blade cage, uh, then the fighter that tripped it is moved into base contact with the marker and gains the webbed condition. So it immediately traps them. So this is... Um, I believe a lot of people have made references to this similar to like the Saw films where someone is trapped in this spiked yeah, yeah. cage and they're not technically bound or prevented from moving as such, but it's just that obviously if they do move, they're going to be skewered. <laughs> Which yeah, that's cool. I think is pretty cool because I, I read up again on web to sort of remember exactly how it works, and it basically does put you into a state of injury where you're testing every turn, and um, if you roll a flesh wound, then you become um, unwebbed and so on. So the way this ends up playing out is if you end up tripping this cage, you become webbed, so you're effectively injured, and um, at the, in every end phase, you're having to make a recovery test, which could result in you going out of action. Which I like to think is you, you know, making the wrong move and trying to prize up in this spike cage. Um, or you could get a flesh wound and then you escape being webbed. So to me, that's you managing to open the cage, but you've in injured yourself in some way. You know, you've got spiked, you've got cut, you've not got out of it without taking a scrape. Yeah. However, it says here that as long as the blade cage has a trapped fighter, it cannot trap additional fighters. And fighting's move, uh, fighters moving past it do not need to make initiative checks to see if they're caught. However, the way I read that, that means that if you become webbed, i.e. captured, if you roll your flesh wound and you break out, that means the cage is no longer trapping anyone, and that fighter's within two inches of it. So if they attempt to move again, they'll have to take another initiative check, otherwise risk re-triggering the cage. <laughs> No, do you think that's do you think that's the way it's written to mean that, or do you think you're looking for like you're finding a gap in the way? It's so written? I think it's, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's a little bit of an oversight, but also kind of works because what you can do is 
there's the ability to disarm these traps. So blade cages yeah. can be removed by performing the disarm basic action and passing an intelligence check. This can only be done when you're within an inch of it, which means that you know it's actually a trap, I believe, because it's blade cages can be removed by performing the disarm basic trap and passing intelligence check. Yeah, you would already have had to have... Um established that it is one and you would also already have either have had to have just escaped from it or have passed the initiative chest test not to get trapped no, so by it more or less but if you've passed the initiative check it's not been revealed so you've not been trapped and you don't know it's a trap in order to disarm it is is oh shit yeah of course sorry i'm, I'm talking myself around yeah not because yet. if you've you don't know it's a trap until it's revealed and when it's revealed it traps you so you the intention here, I believe, is so that while someone is trapped in it, a friendly fighter can come over and attempt to disarm it. Because they can get yeah. an inch of it because it can't trap them because it's currently got someone in it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And it says, ah. if this check is failed, the fighter becomes trapped because you've triggered it, you've failed to disarm it. Now, obviously, if you've got a friend who's already in it, it can't trap anyone else, so it's safe for someone to come over and attempt to disarm it. Does that make sense? Because even if they fail the check, they're not going to get trapped. Someone else is already trapped in it. However, if you're trapped in it and you're on your lonesome and you pass your injury roll, you get your first wound, you're no longer webbed. The trap would release because you've you've forced it open, go out of it. If you manage to roll that recovery roll, get your flesh wound, you're no longer webbed. You've got two options. You can either go for the initiative check to attempt to move away without triggering it and leave it active. Or you can go for the intelligence check to attempt to disarm it. But if you fail to disarm it, you'll trigger it and then you get trapped again. Yeah. So so you you can play to your strengths then, can't you, basically? It's which one of those roles is more likely to fall yeah, in your favour. Stepping away from it or disarming it, whichever is better for you. So if you're mm-hmm. a Goliath, you're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it, like I said, it's it's not... I think it's one of those ones where when you play out in practice, it'll probably make more sense than trying to talk about it in theory. It'll be more obvious in the moment, but I think that's how it works. So all that resolves around you becoming webbed or not. And basically, the same mechanics remain true for the decapitator trap, except that if you trigger it and you get hit by it, Rather than becoming automatically webbed, you automatically suffer an injury roll. Oh, which this by <laughs> I'm guessing there's a bit of a price discrepancy on these. It's things. not massive. Uh, Blade cage is fifty. Yes, so there is there is a reasonable uh, discrepancy in both cost and rarity. So that makes the rarity sense. is the main thing. It, it's fifty credits for the cage, seventy five for the decapitator, but the rarity is nine and yeah. eleven. So decapitators are hard to find or craft. Um. Especially when you consider that this is if you fail an initiative check, you just automatically take an injury roll. So it's bypassing wounding, it's bypassing armor, it's bypassing remaining wounds. Yeah. You know. That's, you do not want one of those no. on the board, you really don't. Um, and again, if you want, if you know it's there because it's already been activated, uh, so you've taken that injury roll and you get a flesh wound as a result, you're still standing, you're still an active fighter. That means in your next turn, you can attempt to either step away from it without triggering it, or attempt to disarm it. But if you fail either that intelligence or initiative check, whichever one you go for, you trigger it again and you get another injury hit. Oh, they are so shitty. They are so shitty. I, I don't know, mate. I, I think my my whole um, 
sort of idea about how to run a Nesha gang initially from the beginning now is changing just based on those traps alone. Because if you get House Yulanti, you get some credits in nice and early, try and boost up that you know reputation and whatnot as quickly as possible through various other means that are available. Get it to the point that you can get those, and then just buy like two or three of them as quickly as you can. Imagine the board control you've got. Oh no! That, when I said them. when I said they're shitty, I didn't mean they're bad. I mean that's a shitty thing. To get oh yeah, no, foul no, of. I, know, I know what yeah. you meant. <laughs> really like, shitty. Yeah, can you imagine that though? The board control you're going to have if you mm-hmm. if people know that you've got like a fistful of decapitators. Like and the, and the beauty of it is, is that they don't know how many. You could have one, and just through psychology alone. You're controlling that board because even if they reveal one and they've really that you've blown your load, you've got no more. They don't know that every other marker on that board that they haven't already established is or isn't a trap is or isn't a trap. It's 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 beautiful. Yeah, it's it's really really for the low low price of fifty credits, you can engage in a whole new level of psychological warfare because they don't know that you've got a bladed cage. (laughs) They might think you've got three decapitators. They don't know. (laughs) <laughs> That's awesome, and it's it, it's just really fun. I'm looking forward to converting up some markers to represent these. Um, and like I said, the best part is the yes. fact they don't impede the Escher player at all. You can just move past them freely because you're not you know how not to trigger them. You know where the the, the triggers are and stuff. Now there could be yep. an argument made for if it's revealed, are you not able just to destroy it by shooting it or combating it or whatever? It's up to your arbitrator to allow for such things. But technically, there is a mechanic to remove them, which is the disarming mechanic. It's just considered that... I guess the way to look at it is if it's a mechanism that's a a pneumatic spike coming out of the wall, if it retracts on activation, then it's kind of hard to just destroy that if the whole mechanism is actually mounted in the wall and it doesn't have any exposed components. And it just so turns out that your arbitrator is an Escher. Yeah. No, mate. It, as it as it lies, that's how it's staying. I'm not putting yeah. any extra yeah, balls in. <laughs> I mean, you can you can throw a grenade at it and lose the grenade, but it won't have any effect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then the extra couple of things you get, which are more in the typical chem toxic um, range of tools, is the um, first up is the gas sensor, which is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a marker on a 25mm base. Uh, it can be set up anywhere on the battlefield outside of your opponent's deployment area. In the end phase, a fighter that is within 3 inches of a gas sensor must take a toughness, tech, must take a t- toughness check, adding any bonuses from war gear that would help against gas. If the check is failed, or if it was natural 6, they suffer an immediate flesh wound. So it's basically like a, an area effect of constant gas, which you can move through it, you just can't be in it in the end phase. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not again. It it's it's just you're just controlling like you you're suggesting to somebody you probably best go the other way really, which is just so just so happens to be the way I want you to go because that plays into my oh, tactics. Maybe if it, I hang it, this over the door control, chances are you're going to be ending your activation stood next to that door control. While yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing that I've kind of just thought of as well, um, I just went back and read the hidden trap description to see if anything was suggested to this effect. I can't see anything on here that tells you 
you must have like a minimum distance between each trap that you lay down <laughs> on the board. You could literally have a mass like if there's like a central corridor that's stopping people getting to you from the other side, you could literally go bang, there you are, six tokens right in the middle of that. All of them are various things. You know, it's like that could be you're, you're setting up a Tomb Raider style gauntlet. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um yeah, that'd be brilliant. Um I have a, a, a cunning plan with the um, gas canisters that you can buy, which um, they're fun because they're common and they're only 15 credits. And basically, it's like a loot casket. Um, so you bring it with your gang, uh, so you can deploy it like a loot casket, which means it, it deploys in your deployment zone. Um, your fighters can drag it around, and basically, it acts as a, a transportable chem synth that anyone can use, but it only benefits yeah. gas weaponry. Um, and. The second part is that they can be targeted, they can be shot. So these are destructible, they're like toughness free with no armour, and if they take any damage, they explode, at which point they give off a small blast, it's like a gas grenade. But being like... The downside to this, though, is it says any fighter within the three inches of the gas. Yes, that's the point. So it's a... Rather than, say, paying 45 points to buy chemsims for free fighters, you can pay 15 points, uh, points Mm -hmm. credits even, um, for a canister that any number of fighters can use yeah however i also think it's particularly funny that if you were to drag your gas canister over to one of your hidden trap markers then any poor sword who happens to be stuck in a a blade cage oh god you could just shoot that gas canister (laughs) and uh gas them while they're stuck in the cage Oh, Tony, I'm I'm starting to make notes for your um, get together. By the way, I hope you know this. <laughs> yeah, listeners, just so you know, uh, Tony's birthday next year is March time, and he's talking about doing it at weekend, or assuming that this uh, bloody zombie virus has buggered off. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so we're gonna have to be making furious notes on this. Now. I don't know. I have many fun <laughs> arbitrator plans for the shenanigans that we're gonna get up to. But yes. I've I've started making my notes here. It's just one word. It says bastard. <laughs> uh, it, it's a knockout, but uh, Necromander style. Yeah. yeah. To, to Kashi's castle, but yeah. with knives and poison. Yeah. That's the sort of stuff that I just really love playing around with. That the Escher gang enables more so than anyone else. Really, I find. Like I say, the funny part is. I could even choose to put that gas canister next to a trap marker that I know is a dud. But how much is that going to play on someone's mind, thinking that, hmm, he suspiciously left this explosive canister next to this potential cage trap? Hmm. Do I go that yeah. way or not? Like, same things with the gas sensors. There's no reason why you can't place a gas sensor over a trap marker, which might be, you know, trapping someone there, and then they're going to be stuck in that three-inch radius. Yeah, yeah, again, it's, it's the psychological warfare aspect. Yeah, basically, the the last thing is just the enhanced gang relic, which is the chemist cult relic, which this thing's 100 credits, and I think is brilliant for later stages of campaigns once you've got a ton of territories you want to hold on to. So if you're in that strong position where you need to be holding off a lot of defender scenarios, because basically it acts like a standard gang relic, so all the bonuses you get for that. In addition... It acts as a chem synth, just a full-purpose chem synth for any friendly fighters within three inches. And additionally, um, it acts as an assist for recovery rolls. So it's practically like um, a standing medikit huh. sort of thing. So you could have an injured fighter who by themselves, um, if they're within three inches of the relic, they get to roll two dice and pick 
the one of their choice for recovery. Yeah, it's pretty solid. And then the other part of it is kind of like the gas sensor, where any enemy fighters who end their activation within three inches of the relic have to take a toughness check with any gear bonuses against gas, or immediately suffer a flesh wound. So, if someone, if you're in later stages of a campaign, this is another example. If you can spend a hundred credits on something that isn't actually going to skyrocket your gang rating a lot, because it's only in scenarios where you're the defender that you can bring it. And if you're defending, it's probably because that person wants this important turf off you. And a lot of those scenarios involve the, them having to defile your relic in order to achieve that. So if your relic is providing you with enhanced um, toxic and gas weaponry, enhanced recovery rolls to make sure you can defend it better, and even go so far as to be causing flesh wounds on the enemies who are trying to defile it, it's making life a lot harder to try and you know win that game and take that turf off you. I really like it. Oh no, absolutely, yeah. A, a gang relic that can hurt you for trying to actually destroy it is it's just an extra little bonus, isn't it? It's like yeah, come on, yeah, it's come not on, like have it a has to be manned or something, you know, like the rivet cannon and stuff like that. It just does its thing. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, so that's the. Uh... So yeah, so that's all of them. So we've actually covered it all, haven't we? We've gone through uh, the uh, alliances, and then we've got all the uh, relics and traps and stuff as well. That's basically everything, yeah. And there's, as you can see, there's a lot of options with all of it. Yeah, it, it holds up against what you said earlier on. House Escher have just got so much flavour and, and options attached to them, really. Well, thank you very much for that, Tony. Yeah, man, absolute pleasure having you along. We'll have to definitely do it again in the future, man. Um, it, you've, you've obviously got... Um, your own kind of wicked little mind there um, and it's always nice to hear um, some some kind of fresh perspectives on the rules and, and how to kind of think outside the box so yeah cheers no, man. I'm always happy to preach the glory of House Escher <laughs> Excellent Okay listeners right well up next I believe it's Becky Boom Previously on Becky Boom's versus Becky Becky attempted to join the local Escher gang, the Sub-City Sirens, to get her hands on the mysterious Escher chemicals that everyone been raving about for the last few months. In doing so, Becky had to take out some competition by locking them in a shack with a subcrock. Then, enjoy the terrors of an interview as she attempted to win over the gang members speaking to her. Passing with flying colors, she was allowed into the gang, given some branded equipment, and taken to the gang stronghold, where she was given a tour that included a super awesome kitted-out armory. Oh, and a, a, a cam lab. But Becky was unable to get into them because they were very carefully guarded. Uh, not like how amateur Orlocks guarded their heavy borders, but like proper security with guards and keypads and stuff. Uh, not that Becky had time to try and break in because she had to go through the initiation hazing, which involves paddles, oils, pillow fights, getting a tattoo of a feelings on a butt, uh, which still is a little itchy. Anyhow, Becky then learned that as a new recruit, she had to go through a teaching program with other Jews, like um, Hogwarts for X. 
activists, including a class that she is about to attend for how to build bombs. Stupid enforced learning designed to break the minds of weak girls and then toughen them up. But not Becky. Her mind is like steel and cannot be broken. Becky! You're about to be late for explosives class. Get a move on. Oh, yes, miss. Just finished now, miss. Becky, a word, please. Oh, sure, Jenna. I mean, miss. So... I appreciate you making some effort to fit in here, like calling the gang tutors Miss, and I realise that some of what we are teaching you here is, frankly, beneath your ability. However, please try and keep that mind of yours under control. Uh, Miss? One girl in the infirmary to show you're not to be fucked with is pretty much run of the course round here. But sending one of the guest lecturers to the infirmary as well, not good, Becky. <laughs> to be fair, je- I, I, miss, I, I programmed the airbot to go after Sadie because she was being a class A bitch. It only smacked Miss Gerbridge because she tried to deactivate it before it finished folding Sadie into a pretzel. Yes, and heretics that will come and deal with a classroom full of Escher Jews are not easy to come by. They tend to be rather isolated, even without a zombie virus doing the rounds. So your stunt has delayed all the recruits getting their coding and strip kit training for a week at least. It doesn't help that the next qualified person we have available to teach them will be, well, you. Anyhow... Point is, keep the skirmishes out of the classroom and strictly in the yard or the dorm rooms. Yes, miss. Now, get into class. I'm having to fill in for Crookshanks today while she's getting a new arm fitted. There's a certain level of irony the explosives lecturer has had her arm blown off. Uh, it, at least it's the kind of irony that I had nothing to do with. Yes, yes. I'm well aware of that, as is the rest of the gang. Anyhow, class, now. All right, Becky. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm good, I'm good. Okay, girls, sit your asses down and shut your holes. Enter. This explosives. <laughs> shut it, girls. It's an orlock, get over it. Yes, Mr. Fox, thank you for coming today. Very much appreciate your patronage. It, of course, all goes towards educating this rabble. It's not rabble. I heard that you have quite a promising bunch of hellraisers here, and in the interest of inter-house relationships, I am quite happy to trust in your girl's abilities. It's rather handsome for an Orlock, don't you think, Becky? Nah. All right, girls. Mr. Fox has an opportunity of sorts for you today. He's in need of some ordnance, and he's going to be picking one of your projects that you've been working on in the last few days with Miss Crookshanks. Can you all get your projects out? Hey, the lady. Will. 
You've got a green wire hanging out of the side. Is there? What? Oh, shit. Uh, thanks, Becky. Uh, you okay? Where did it go again? Uh, was it in the... Uh... Dude! What are you doing, bitch? You trying to blow us all to kingdom come? Little yellow circuit board. Third plug on the right. Oh, oh yeah, of course. Uh, uh, thanks. Right then, Mr. Forks, if you'd like to go around and inspect the girls' work. Indeed I would. Indeed I would. Well, this is a classic. Is this yours? Yeah. It's got a certain old world charm to it. The alarm clock is a nice touch. I'm guessing that it ticks when activated, right? Yeah. Hmm. Demo charge attached? Uh, yeah? Sorry, miss. Not the quite the right thing for what I've got in mind. Ticking might be a bit of a giveaway. Oh. This a poison gas trap? Yeah? Sadly, that leaves too much chance in open air. Ah, balls. Promising. Oh. Nicely sized digital readout. What's the payload? Well, that's mine. I made it. It's uh, standard plastic explosives. Okay. Potentially workable, as long as there's no mastiffs with nasal units. Detonator? It's on a timer, but there is a series of fake-out wires on there that will cause detonation if someone tampers with it. Motion sensors at all? Er, uh, well, no. We'll put this as a maybe. Holy Emperor on a starch cracker! Is this seriously an explosive device? It's, it's huge! That's what she said. Yeah, she got a lot of uh, junk in the trunk, Mr. Fox. Got to say, this doesn't look like any explosive I've ever seen. It looks like, I don't know, some sort of control panel or an ice box or something. Yeah, uh, that's part of the design for it. I, I mean, if you saw that somewhere, would you start messing around with it? Can't say that I would. Yeah, at the same time, would you say it looks suspicious or out of place? No. No, I don't think I would. Hmm. Interesting. Tell me more. Digital board attached to a chemical mix, so no way for it to be sniffed out by hands. Low heat output until it's time to go boom. Multiple explosive types, motion detection, timbre detection, a keypad code diffusal, and remote detonation up to about... 900 meters away. Uh, give or take a few. What's the detonator? It's this. A plush unicorn. Yeah. Wait. Are you telling me that you don't use plush casings? No. The enforcers stop you with a small black controller with an antenna and a few switches. They'll be beating the hell out of you within seconds. But with my patent-pending unicorn casing, they'll just laugh at you. Or wonder why a grown man has a plush unicorn on him. 
an orlock at that. Mr. Fox, if that was me, I'd politely remind the enforcers that it is the 41st millennium and that there's no shame in a grown man wanting to carry a unicorn around with him, should he want. And then just to fuck with him, tell him it's actually for your daughter. Point well made. <laughs> Thank you. Also, is the grease it's tummy? Okay. <laughs> You're taking my special face. Uh, what? Now squeeze his horn. I need your soul. That's messed up. <laughs> I know. Uh, now the detonator is primed, and if you pull his tail, it will explode the bomb. And thank you. Uh, can you uh can you uh. Deactivate the primal? Yes, yes, yes. Just reverse the horn and tummy to deactivate. Come to daddy. You need to get that. Okay. Yes, well, yeah. uh, what, what are these tubes in here for? Dramatic statements. Meaning? Listen, man. Becky got shit to do. So... If you want this triple-A boombox of delights, quit tickling my balls and get to the chef. Because if you don't want it, I got three other bitches who are down to buy this shit when lunchtime bell rings. You dig? Oh, shit. Becky Boom! What? Dude already knows that if he's buying or not, I ain't got time for this show pony shenanigans. Can you get me five of these to me within the hour? Five? You throw in three bags of blue gummy bears for each student in this room on top of whatever you pay and miss, and you got a deal. Done. Well, I... Uh... Thank you for your assistance. Girls, nice to see new blood has got uh, some balls. But, well, not balls, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we do. Balls. Big balls, all of us. That's how the some silly sirens do. Zelene, don't leave me hanging. Fist bump me, bitch. Oh, 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 sorry. Well, that's uh, the bell. Go on, girls, get out for ten. I think we're going to need you all back in here after break, though. We've got a lot of work to do. And that's what all the blue gummies bears are for. Play my outro. Becky, what are you doing? Come on. Let's play dodgeball! You are now about to witness some city radio. Okay, listeners, welcome back. By the sounds of it, it seems that Becky's settling in nicely with that Escher gang, Chris. Yeah, um, I'm looking forward to seeing what toys she brings back with her, if I'm honest. <laughs> well, you never know what they're going to have over there. I'm alluding to uh, something from the outtakes from the last episode, something to do with spades. But anyway, let's, let's crack on with this. Uh, in a slight change to the sort of normal programming that we have with the show, we've actually got double helpings of the War Room as uh, we now dip into Orlocks. So let's crack on with that. This is the War Room. Welcome 
to the war room. Round two. Let's talk tactics. Fight! Yeah, so um, in the absence of uh, Jess Lee, we're joined by another guest today, um, long-time Orlock player Pete Adamson. Um, I've had the pleasure of dying at this man's hands several times as we've tested different scenarios and gang lists. So, uh, Pete, first of all, thanks for taking time out uh, from Caravan Detail for the Red Tigers to come and discuss the House of Iron. Right then, so how are you guys? Yeah, yeah not too not bad, too bad thank you. I guess a good place to start would be telling us um, basically why above all the other houses you prefer all Um, I ended up just slotting into a space in a campaign with friends. You know, started back in second edition. Everyone else went you know, went scrambling for likes of Goliath, um, the Van Sars, and Orlok's were one of the few that appealed to me. And was what was it about them that you thought, yeah, that's the that's the team for me, other than being the last um, kid left picked for PA? Ended up picking the Orlocks, giving them a nice theme of the Red Tigers, just thinking of something stupid I could paint on them, and you know, picked that theme long before that bitch Carol Baskins. <laughs> Is there anything particular about the play style of Orlocks that kind of you, you learn to love if they're not necessarily something that you searched out straight away? From like N17, obviously during the the gangs of the Underhive, that's where I came into love with just having like loads and loads of bolters into your gang because you can finally reload guns mid-battle yeah. you know, versus the, the earlier editions. Yeah, where you would just kind of take a shot, you had bolter jammed, and that was if uh, you were just running around with a really heavy piece of metal for the rest of the game, yeah. Given that we have had the House of Iron drop, what were your initial feelings of the new book? Did you have any misgivings, such as like um, the the very now infamous loss of Savant skill for champions, which seemed to be a big bone of contention for a lot of Orlock players? Well, obviously losing Savant on your champions, that is quite a hit, because even it's scattering munitioner throughout throughout your gang, also losing other skills like your fixer, savvy trader, and they're just... Little little annoyances that you could be handy throughout the getting, like throughout a campaign. Yeah, that's fair enough. Steve, what about you? Did you? What was your initial reaction to the book? Uh, to the book, I was just really surprised. It's actually made me a, a lot more interested in having a crack at Orlocks, um, especially with the new records that you've got involved in it. Plus, you've got all the uh, sort of the, the beefy sergeants going around. So yeah, I'm I'm actually really curious to see what can be done with it. Definitely, man. Right, so that takes us to Wreckers, which are obviously the, the runaway star of the new book, whether you, you've reacted to it in a Marmite way and you love them or you hate them. They're there. They change the game in a huge way for Orlock. Now, we've had the, the chance to test them out really quickly in the test game, didn't yeah. we, Pete? Um, how did you find them? And uh, do you think they're a positive kind of move for the gang? Or how do you feel? Okay. Um, straight out of the box, just off the house list, they're a bit of a glass hammer. They're light and fast, they've got potential to do a lot of damage, but lacking some heavy armour, they're just a little vulnerable to getting popped off. They're one of the benefits they do have, which is a bit more to your, to your gang fighters now, is that they do have the hazard suits, so you can make them immune to the likes of Blaze, which is quite a benefit at times. Yep, yeah, no, definitely. Blaze is a son of a bitch to be lumbered with, especially if you're a... Um... A fast attack unit, you're not doing much um, effective movement on the board if you're on fire and running about and screaming. Steve, I've seen it myself, but um, Taras T came up with a really interesting list build um, revolving oh, yeah. around wreckers, if you'd like to kind of... Yeah, sure. I think Taras took the approach that Jess Lee kind of does to these kind of things and go, what's the most I can push this to? 
So he came up with a gang list, which was... Here we go. Yeah, it's a seven-wrecker list. Uh, so you start off with the road captain with a minimal loadout, which is an auto gun, knife, and stub gun. And then you have seven wreckers in hazard suits armed with... One of them's got a hand flamer. You've got two lots of plasma pistol, chainsaw, and stub gun, and four auto pistol and flail. So that's all for a starting list's worth of, I'm guessing, a thousand points then. Now, obviously, that means you're going to have to buy two of the boxes of the new models because you only get four wreckers in a box. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I think that would be a potentially really interesting gang to run. don't think it would necessarily be... It wouldn't be like a very sort of uh, power gamery kind of build for a gang, but as far as flavour goes, it's got all the flavour. Oh, definitely, man. And it's going to be basically a fuck ton of fun, isn't it? Essentially, you've That's just it, got yeah. seven of these guys screaming around the board, taking pot shots at everyone, dropping demo charges, whatever it is kind of you, you assign them to. Um, in fact, I read a really um, interesting battle report, which I couldn't find afterwards. I need, really need to kind of do a deep dive and try and find it again, where somebody had um, been had his sniper hauled up in a tower and this guy just shot a um, basically a bit of a suicide run, shot a demo charge in. And he had a sniper up in the tower, and a, I think it was a champ and a leader, and they all just got taken out of action with one. Yeah. So from a prospect, that's that's a pretty effective kind of um, of move. And yeah, I mean, it fits the bill with everything that's been sort of touted for prospects so far anyway, isn't it? It's, you know, these young... Uh, kind of dangerous gangers that we've got that'll do anything to be accepted by the rest of the gang so that they can sort of work their way up the ranks because they're currently on the fringes. Oh, definitely. It's like these reckless acts of daring do that maybe your more veteran players wouldn't kind of wouldn't risk. It's like, here, put this definitely safe backpack on, jet yourself up there and do that. Like, yeah, definitely, I'll do that. Yeah, definitely. Here's the safety manual. It just says, press this button to yeah, go. That, that's it. In case of emergency, die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Put your head between your knees and kiss your ass goodbye. <laughs> right, okay. So, um, now Pete's done uh, quite a decent little breakdown of the book because obviously, like I say, he's a keen um, Orlock player. That's his main house. Right. So, obviously, first things first is that they've took a, they've took a slight points cost, so they're done. The captain's down to 105 credits, but cool. once you factor in for mesh armor, they're more or less the same. Then, in, including the new names, they've actually got a slight buff to what they had. So, going down the list, they've got a, they've got a few new little bits on, so they've now got access to Mastercrafted Bolters, um, Bolt Pistols, and even, surprisingly, Mastercrafted Fighting Knives. Then, on top of that, they've gained the special ammo for the regular shotgun. They've also got access to com combi bolt grenade launcher. Then, going into the heavy weapons, they've also got, got the mining laser, the seismic cannon. Um, a nice little perk in the close combat is that they've gained the LAS cutter. They've also gained the power mole, power pick. And then, they've gained a vast improvement on all the grenades. So, they've now... So in addition to what they've already had, they've also gained melter bombs for on grenades, the scare, smoke grenades. Then they've also then following the the line for the house of books, the he's also got access to um, carapace armor. Then they also get a partial servo harness, the suspenser, and they also get zero to three mastiffs. Um, yep, nice. so pretty decent increase in armory size out of the uh, sorry out of the gears. 
Um, obviously, those Mastiffs, gorgeous models. Um, I think they're one of the highlights of the actual kit itself. They look so cool. Cost-wise, I'm not too keen on dropping 100 mm, credits on a, yeah, on a Mastiff. The only true perk is that you can't coup de gras them whilst the like the main fighter whilst the Mastiffs are there. Yeah. I mean, they look like I say, they look good, and as a status item, they're really sweet. But unless you're kind of going for a, like, especially when enforcers get a hard case mastiff, it's it's a little or 30 bit credits less. Yeah, it's a little bit of a sting, like to be fair. But yeah, it's again, do you play roller cool and you think, sod it, I'm gonna make this investment because my leader or champ just has to have a dog or three. Um, and and roll with it, or yeah, is it just one of those things that kind of sit on the sit on the um, sidelines? Like with um, unfortunately, the majority of gangs I've seen written for Escher with the um, Wild Runners and and Fear Cats, they're cool, but they seem like a little bit more of a novelty, an expensive novelty at that out of the gate. Yep. So then coming up next, you've got the Road Sergeant. So that's the champion. So they're down to 80 credits, but again, the same as the road captain. Once you have factor in for mesh armor, the same cost as what they were. And with the new names, they've actually got a slight buff. So the main armory is identical, except that for some reason, they're missing the power knife. And also their masters are down to two. Then factoring in on the skills, which obviously has ruffled a lot of feathers by getting changed around. So there are some questions to whether this is... A type um, a copy and paste error from the arms master and it's the first yet that we've seen the the champion lose a skill set hmm. yeah so we'll see how this plays out so do you, do you think that's a potential faq is that the kind of the consensus among the groups because i'm reluctant to see that as um i suppose it could be a copy and paste error i mean i know um, we have had that there's um, little bits like the missing shooting secondary, which even the specialists get. Do you think this could be a trade-off for the fact that you get wreckers though, and that your um your gangers now have access to pretty much everything? Um, again, it's the first time a champion has had the house the house skill set primary. So it might just be a new precedent. It might be a copy and paste error. We'll find out in time. Yeah, because I would have loved um. What you call it? Uh, the Escher's special skill list. Um, I would have loved that on my matriarchs. If I could have a backflip and hammer wheel, that would have been class. So two rights. So it, bravado. Okay. So like Pete was saying, it's the first time that the Uber Champ skills um, have been placed on primary. So the it adds kind of a, a completely new dimension um if we go through the rest of the fighters then and then we'll come back to yep. bravado because obviously that's quite a big um oh, yes. talking point for for all of obviously we then get on to the arms master so they're coming in at 95 credits obviously you still got all all their equipment to add on to them they're just a nice jack of all trades so movement five weapon skill and ballistic skill three wounds two attacks two so they're just fitting in that nice balance between the between the captain and the sergeant. Mm. The other big bonus, well, is that they're still getting a group activation, which is the first on the specialist champion. Yeah. Then they also get a new ability called Rule of Iron, which allows them to confer nerves, nerves, of, yeah, nerves of steel on another fight on another fighter within six inches. 
mm-hmm. which is obviously a huge bonus because Nerves of Steel is definitely one of the most powerful skills in the game. Yeah, when a game can be won or lost on pinning and you have a, an option to avoid that, then, yeah, that's that's really strong, kind of. Well, it's even be able to just confer it onto wreckers, helping them push forward, stopping them from being pinned, getting that important charge. Then moving on to their weapons list. Moving on to the weapons list. So basic weapons, they get the combat shotgun, and they get that. Then they also get a regular shotgun. They also get the executioner and the inferno ammo as well. Nice. Then they get the stub guns with with dum dum rounds. Then moving into the close combat, they've got fighting knives. with the master crafted. They've got power knives. Then they've also got the brand new shiny arc hammers, which they can master craft. And they also get the two handed hammer, which you can master craft as well. They then get. A nice mix of grenades, so they're getting the blasting charge, demo charge, frag grenade, crack, melter, foot on flash, scare, smoke grenades. Then move also moving into the armor, they get light they get light and heavy carapace, they also as well as your flak and mesh. They even get the option of a conversion field. Then they'll moving on to their personal equipment, they then get um the armored undersuit, the bio booster, drop break filter plugs, photo goggles, respirator. Then they also get access to either a full or a partial server harness. Mm. Then then the typical stuff like your telescopic sight, and then finally a couple of cyber masters. Mm-hmm. So you're going to say something, Steve? Yeah, I got a couple of points there. Um, so generally speaking, when someone creates a gang, the kind of hierarchy that they go for is I have one leader, I have two champs, and then I fill the rest out. That, that's kind of traditionally what we tend to do. So you're looking at in that kind of setup, potentially, it's what, seven Mastiffs running around on the board? Because you can have three on the leader and then two on the champs, right? Yeah. Yep. So that's that's an interesting gang layout, so particularly as we've said that the Mastiffs aren't necessarily the most um, useful beasts, I suppose, other than that you can't go up and shank the guy who's got them. Um, in addition to that, what's the the point of Mastercrafted these days, especially with regards to close combat weapons? Mastercrafted lets you re-roll one attack per game. It's very nerfed in, in comparison to what it was, but then it's mm. much easier to get. You literally take it off your house list as opposed to having to go to the trade yeah, post and for it. Also, the yeah. costing of it's way cheaper than what it was. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, for five credits and ten credits a pop, respectively, on the two-handed hammer and the fighting knife. Oh, and the uh, the R camera as well. Just noticed, has got it. Um, it doesn't seem too bad when you're talking about that fewer credits to get that, you know, one extra potential chance to shank someone up. Yeah, because if you were in the middle of a battle and somebody said, to "You, if you sacrifice five creds, you can have another roll." There's many opportunities or instances where you would gladly lose five credits from your stash to have another crack at like a shot or a, a hit. Absolutely. And the thing is, of course, that they've got immediate access to that on their starting list. Well, exactly, yeah. There's no hunting it down or rolling rarities or paying out through the exactly. uh, through the teeth for it, yeah. Which, speaking of uh, rarities and uh, getting it on their starting list as a first, uh, conversion fields, I believe that's the first time that we've seen a field armour appear on any gang to start with. Uh, so far, yeah. Yep. That's, that's <laughs> I was going to say, Van Saar coming out, probably likely to get something like that as well. But yeah, so far, that's the first time anyone's had a conversion field. Oh, definitely. And and like Pete said, there's a couple of changes to the formula that we've seen, whereas um, you've got champs 
um, uber champs, so like the, um, the the specialist, the heavy champs, I guess. I, I, I don't know what else to refer to them as, you know, where you've got yeah. like Death Maidens. Um, uh, is it Stimmers for, yes. Stimmers for Goliath? Um, and uh, obviously uh, Arms Masters for Orlok and the new Archaeotex that we've seen preview for Van Saar. It's the first one out of the initial three that has um, the ability to group activate, which makes sense thematically if these are like your big kind of mean-looking uh, overseers who kind of send your men into battle and kind of make them shake off the fear and, and, and make that dangerous charge and give them the nerves of steel. Because it's, yeah. it's not that you make them courageous, it's that... It's that you know, you always had that kid who would have a fight because he was more scared of what his dad would do to him if he didn't, rather than yeah. the big guy that he had to fight. It's that situation, isn't it? It's like, right, <laughs> I really don't want to run into this kind of firing line, but at the same time, I'm worried what uh, Dave's going to do to us if I don't do what, you know, it's that the whole, it feeds yeah, into yeah. the whole brotherhood aspect of, of House Orlock. Um, and it's also, like you'd said, the first time that the traditional champs, the standard champs, um, what do you call road sergeants in this, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that they, they have the ability to take that primary, uh, the, the the new skill set is a primary skill set, which is, it, I'd, I'd be willing to accept that one or two copy and pastes have, have been made in RS or like with a savant skill or whatever, but that seems like a deliberate choice to me because of the kind of, the, the kind of character you've got. Now, Armsmasters, to me, suffer from a, a touch of the vanilla. Now, and I've got nothing, I think they sound great, and, and I've, I've been unlucky enough to have them supercharging fighters and sending them towards me, so I know how effective, effective they can be. Um, and like Pete says, Nerves of Steel is a really powerful skill to have in Necromunda. Yeah. Um, avoiding being pinned is just so effective um but i you know a, a death maiden is a combat monster you know the immediate benefits of taking it it's really straightforward on the paper and uh, judging by all of the um the battle reports i've read they are combat monsters they are just yeah. fearsome nasty whereas with these guys they lose a little bit of the um the the sparkle and the pizzazz because they get such exciting prospects with wreckers, but I think there's a definite kind of place for them within a gang, at least running one of them within um, a new Orlock lineup, just to get yeah. that benefit that they provide to the wreckers and, and to any other kind of fighter within a certain radius. Yeah, no, I think you're on to something there. Um, but yeah, the, the, the change of the skills is uh, perhaps surprising, if it is legit, as opposed to sort of... Um, copy and paste type errors but i like the way that they're keeping us on our toes with the way that they've changed things up ever so slightly for the you know what we were expecting oh no definitely man the more surprises they throw the better i mean jesus christ surfboards come on flying surfboards <laughs> but let's not get into that this is a house of irons moment yeah. so um contain yourself chris you've got to wait at least another month yeah i know leave me alone <laughs> <laughs> Well, obviously, one of the big standout weapons for the Arms Master is the Arc Hammer. Yes. yes. Because you've now got a great big weapon, so you've got something... Oh, thank you. Sorry, um, Pete sat in the same room with me, and I didn't realise I was exposed, but... Uh, <laughs> appreciate that. Well, that's just because I've got a screen this. down the middle of the studio, I don't get to so... see all this crap. <laughs> 
That's why I put it there. So you've got strength plus three, minus one AP, damage three, melee pulverized, versatile with a one with a one inch um like one, one inch. inch versatile range. Yeah. So it's not the biggest of range, but it is quite a beefy weapon. Yeah. That is sounding all very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> that's again, that's why the screen's there. <laughs> Um, no, so, okay, so we've got a really strong kind of... Chuck them stats over here again, quick. Right? So, what was it? It was damage three, which is very uncommon. It's uh, uh, There's not many weapons. Uh, rock cutter, I think, is one yeah. of you, and that's coming in at, like, 135 credits, and it's unwieldy. And that's strength plus three, but as we see in the kit, it's modelled with a guy wearing a full servo harness, which is adding two to his strength again. So we're talking about um, strength three plus three, which is six. So we're talking about... um, He's holding eight fingers up for us, bless him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Quick maths. (laughs) So strength eight hit. Uh, uh, on a melee combat, that's pretty. It's like wounding Goliath on a two and up. Yeah, that's oh, a nice anti-Goliath um, technique. To be fair, I, I do like it. It is going to set you back nearly five hundred credits, though. Five hundred with a um, full servo suit. Sorry, it's over five hundred. Yeah, yeah, that's Cross half me. half a starting list. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus Christ, you must really hear Goliath. <laughs> you must, you've got one point to prove, and that's it. So five hundred points for him. How many points for a leader, and then how many extra wreckers? And then that's your starting <laughs> gang. And that's your gang. <laughs> <laughs> you get no weapons, wreckers. I'm just flying you directly into. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just punches, punch that's it. Yeah, just ram man from hey man. You just shoot yeah. them across the board, headbutting everybody. Um, right, so yeah, I think there's a place for them. I think, although I mean, they look sweet. The models are really, really cool. I really love that full servo harness that they've done. Um, big hand was always cool. Always looked good. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going from a very aesthetic point of view here. To be honest, they're a great model. It's the fact that they're just a bit taller, a bit hinger than your normal ganger. They're just great to make a leader or a champion yeah make them stand out on the board yeah and, and see that kind of immediate difference or oh, he's a bad bastard i'll avoid him or he's a bad bastard and it take him out and then also throughout a campaign you can you can have a lot of fun with them because they can take basic weapons pistols and close combat weapons so you can choose to upgrade them in a lot of different ways yeah and obviously you get the um where you can have multiple weapon profiles so you're not stifling yourself with a weapons choice from from um creation which is always really nice with uh, leaders and champs right then so what seem then we'll lead on to what seems to be the crown jewel of the orlock list which is the wreckers so they're starting in at quite a hefty 55 credits but with that you are getting the infamous jump pack so they're getting on their stat lines they're getting movement six standard they're getting weapon skill five and up they're skill four and up and then pretty much a standard fighter fighter profile after that. So with the jump pack, that's allowing them to move around a lot faster. They get the standard six-inch movement. Then they can opt to have once per once per turn. They can get a boosted three-inch movement with no penalties. Then you can also choose to to add a further D three to that. But if a one's rolled, it, it malfunctions and the fighter's immediately sent pinned and prone. All right, so it's quite a quite a trade off. Mm-hmm. 
To me, but, visually, hmm. that rolling of a one is like that bit where you've got uh, Tony Stark testing out his very first Iron Man suit once he gets out of the, the war zone. And he's just trying to fly it. And he goes, let's increase the power. <laughs> it just yeah, goes bang, yeah. sends him straight into the ceiling. Just, like face plant into a wall. Yeah. yeah, that's it, yeah. No, I think that's a, it's a really nice kind of um, price to pay. It's not it's not ridiculous. Like, it doesn't blow up on you and kill you, but it does send you prone. Um, yeah. It's really sweet little effect. So essentially, as standard, you can do a nine-inch move. And that's before you putting that risk on yourself. Uh, well, even charging, that's a guaranteed 10-inch charge. Yeah, which is pretty fucking fast in Necromunda. Yeah, there's but... nobody's touching that stock. Yeah, I couldn't think of one. But... Yeah, fuck you. To be fair, the one I'm thinking of is um, when you're using a skill as corpse grinders. Yeah. And that... The way it's written, there is no upper limit. It's like you can exponentially yeah. increase it if you kill enough people. Um, so I think they should have capped that, and I really wish that they would still cap it so it feels a little bit more legit, but this is the closest I think you're going to get. Yeah, I, I don't think anything comes close to that. Like uh, Jess Lee was telling us like a 24-inch charge or something it yep. was, and it was pretty disgusting. But best I ever got to was 18. That, you know, the, the best you ever got yeah. to was nearly twice the amount that we've just been kind of impressed yep. with with records. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's once you've powered it up. This is just yes. out the box. Oh, and yeah, that's yeah. No, that, there, that's, yeah. That's what he was saying, yeah, using a skill. Yeah. So, no, that that's just... You've paid for your guy 55 credits. If you do nothing else to him, he can charge 10 inches. Yeah, that's, that's it's, it. it's pretty impressive stuff. And along with this awesome movement... The other big bonus is on the skills, where they're the only Orlocks who get the shooting primary. So that's opening up all your lovely, the lovely skill sets, namely um, gunfighter, yeah, and hip shooting, which are both really nice skills to have on pistol wield and fast attack troops. Yeah. Yep. So here's a thought. Um, I've just been reading through the the details for this. When you promote these wreckers, do they get to keep those jump packs? Well, this is the thing that the boards are all over the place on. As um, corpse grinders keep their guns, their ranged weaponry, but mm -hmm. what they do lose is they lose their the mask and they get a new mask, which yeah. changes the kind of skill sets that they have. Um, so you've got one camp who think that because essentially you're changing skill sets you should lose your jump pack um and then another set who think no i want a fucking jump pack on an arms master with a hammer yeah. um, <laughs> which is you know sounds amazing let's be Going honest slightly oh, more yes. down the uh, war machine route rather than iron man <laughs> well exactly yeah well, i was more thinking um road sergeant with a jump pack yeah yeah just flying plasma guns yeah, to be fair, that's pretty sweet. That's not a, it's not a bad little um, promotion to get, is it? Uh, I mean, I'd be more than happy for that to run in a campaign, and as long as the arbitrator's kind of... If it doesn't work and it's ridiculously OP, or if an FAQ comes out that says that can't happen, then obviously we'll know different. But mm. until GW kind of give us notice from up on high, it's just down to kind of people bitching and arguing about it you can't no you can't you can no you can't well yeah i'm i'm all for experimentation with the game so if if somebody wanted to try that i'd be more than happy for that to roll in the campaign nice 
So moving on to the weapons list, they get access to some basic weapons. So they get the sawn-off shotgun, and then they also get the option of a solid shot with that as well, which is yeah. a nice little surprise. Then onto the pistols, they get auto pistol, bolt pistol, hand flamer, plasma gun, plasma pistol, stub stub gun with the dum dum rounds. Then nice range of melee weapons. So they get chainsaws, fighting knives, flails, clubs, servo claw, and two-handed hammer. Then in the grenades, they get demo charges, frag grenades, crack grenades, melter bombs. Then armor-wise, they get nice and light in the way of flak armor and hazard suits. Personal equipment, typical stuff like your drop brake, filter plugs, photo goggles, and respirators. And then also, in a campaign, they get access to only com close combat weapons as well as the obligatory war gear. Right, so what we can... I noticed a, a, a guttural from you, Steve, when we mentioned sawn-offs, which... Uh... Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Sawn-offs are supposed to be really cool, but I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to stick sawn-offs on everything. And then I saw what they actually do, and it's like, no, nobody's getting sawn-off now. <laughs> They're all crap. Well, that's it. I mean, as a backup weapon, it, it looks it's cool, but crap. that's the best it does. It is look cool, yeah, because you're better off with an auto pistol yeah. for the for the um, the ammo or the rapid fire, without a doubt. But um, they do seem to have that kind of mid to close range effectiveness. Um, they've got a really good access to some really cool close combat weapons coming in out your chainsaws and. Um, well, I don't know who'd run it with a two-handed hammer, but flails, yeah, flails are probably Bolt one of the more effective well. close combat um, weapons because you get the ensnare, the entangle, sorry, rule. And you also get the plus one to hit. You get the plus one to hit, plus one strength, which are big bonuses. Yeah, on a yeah. scrawny little prospect, yeah. Yeah. What I like that you can do here is you can essentially create the loadout that you get on the, um, I forget what the proper term is for it, but the jetpack space marines. Um, because I remember the very, and fun fact for everyone who's a listener of the show, the very first uh, 40k model that I painted up was one of those jump pack um, ultramarines, and he had a chainsword and a bolt pistol. So you can essentially recreate that by Necromunda, which is kind of funny in a way. Yeah, you just stick a big um, upside, what, what is this, the thing you call on the ultramarines? What's the, the like oh, the okay. Omega symbol? Just stick yeah. that on his arm as a tattoo, and then he's like, "Yeah, he's a, he's <laughs> a, a wannabe, he's a wannabe yeah. Smurf." Yeah. <laughs> oh god, is that another variant of the scrunts? Oh god, yeah, we've already got scrunts with jump packs thanks to someone in the group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, courtesy of Graham Shirley. That yeah, is that's an the awesome guy, yeah. conversion. Yeah, really, really cool. Um, yeah, any more points on wreckers, Pete? That you, you kind of that stand out to you? It's just. It's where do you want to go with them in a the campaign? They are just throwing some mean melee weapons, heavy armor. If you wanted to go really silly, even server harness. Yeah, no, I yeah. could see that. Is that they've got no restriction to the armors they can buy from the trading post. It's just it's all the weapons, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. so armor, yeah. server harnesses, they're all wargear, so you can give them to anybody. Yeah. No, that made them particularly effective at um, close combat given that extra plus it's, two see this is the thing they've got so much versatility and they seem like such a fun unit to have on the board anyway to begin with so it's like what direction do you want to take them in do you want to make them like these like flying missiles basically where they've got all the weapons on them 
Or do you want to go down a sort of a tank route where it's just a really fast moving tank to become a distraction? You know, there's just so many different ways that you can run them. Well, what I found when I was playing against them was automatically I was aware of where they were on the board, where they could go, kind of where their range could take them. And I was using um, a Van Saar gang. And with Van Saar, obviously, the, the tried and tested but extremely cheesy ways to set up a firing line and wait for people to kind of come to you, maybe tease them so out with a tube. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Um, that really changes how um, Vansar can kind of be more effective because although you can set up a firing range, those guys can clear a board in next to no time. They can get up um, up on a kind of terrain that's out of your way. They can shoot and, and, and like boost and glide between cover. Um, so automatically there's a level of if you've got like say your leader or an arms master it's central in the board and quite high up and then you've got wreckers flanking that's a really powerful kind of board control move because yeah. it just automatically makes you think um twice about every little maneuver that you take towards the enemy um especially if you've got that fucking iron stare on the arms master which we'll come back to later so yeah someone just remind me again um if we've got a situation where it's flak armor and hazard suits for the wreckers the hazard suit to me appears to be the immediately um obvious choice because not being on fire is always good um so if you've got these very fast moving units and you're pushing them across the board that i i don't know what's more likely that they're going to have to begin with is it going to be fire units or is it going to be templates but then again is it worth buying the flak that's the question given the two i would rather go for the hazard suit and then and just as i said boycott flak and then buy mesh for like a, just a heavier armor yeah, I suppose the other advantage, of course, is if you do buy hazard suits to begin with uh, and you think, you know what, I want to switch that out later on, you can because there's no restriction on that, is there? Yeah, and then if not, the other way to get around it is some of the names, which we'll get onto later. Yeah, right, so that just leaves us with um, Greenhorns, the, the Orlock troops. That nobody cares about. Um, no, so... Oh, no, we haven't talked about the gangers yet. I'm absolutely but nobody cares shit. about them. <laughs> <laughs> so next, we've got the Orlock Gunners, so that's the new names for the stock gangers. So they come at 45 credits. By the time you add mesh armor on, they're up to 60 credits, which is a five credit increase. Following with the House of the House of Books style, you've got the specialist as well. Over the whole armory, they've not changed much since Gangs of the Underhive. The only noticeable change is the loss of the plasma pistol. But in return, their specialist have gained access to heavy weapons and a suspenser. Yeah, that's quite a big change. I mean, um, I'd argue you're a bit fucking mental putting a heavy weapon on a ganger because of the um, the obvious cost that's going to come along with that. So what did you say your ganger was up to now? 45, so you give him mesh, so he's up to 60, and then you're chucking... I mean, the cheapest heavy weapon is 110 creds, and that's a harpoon launcher. Now... Yeah. People are going to want to rock a heavy bolter or a heavy stubber at the very least. I can't see a heavy flame at anybody kind of throwing that kind of money down. 195 credits for... Plus suspenser. Plus suspenser, yeah. So what's your suspenser? 60 credits? Mm -hmm. So the cheapest option there is 170 credits on Um, top of the 60 credits. The harpoon launcher is not unwieldy. Oh, no, so you don't need the suspenser for that. That's right. So if you take the the heavy bolter or the heavy stubber... 
So you're looking at 190 credits at the cheapest. That's just your gear. That's, yeah. Quick question. Has that always been the case with the Harpoon launcher? Yeah. Yes? Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's one of the kind of the reasons it's not such a terrible weapon because it's not the most effective thing. It's oh. just, it's downside to being at shortish range at only um, 18 inches and it's also scarce and I think it's an ammo roll of a six and up. It is, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, because I've used it with them um, because Fragstone has one. I think used it in that game again. Yeah, it's just, it's not got a lot of punch. It's fun. It's got like a really thematic kind of where you shish kebab and drag everybody. That It's cool if it works and it like make for a good kind of water cooler story afterwards. But yeah, it, I've yet to seen its effectiveness really kind of utilised. It's just good. It looks great. It's a great little model um, and it's fun if, if it pays off. But yeah, it again, I'm not sure I'd chuck the 110 credits on a ganger. Yeah. When you've got options, do you know what I mean? Uh, with the special weapons, I mean plasma gun, lovely uh, grenade launcher with um, frag and crack, and the the melter gun, all yeah. of which are expensive, but much more kind of punch than your um, than your harpoon launcher. Oh yeah. I think I guess it comes down to what you want on the gang and what you want aesthetically, as opposed to you know the the cost side of things and the effectiveness. Oh, definitely, yeah. Well, in return, it can just be a nice big shiny distraction for somebody because sometimes you just go big gun, take that down, and then you've got a champion just armed with say a bolter and a power knife running around, and they're just but they're a lot more deadly than you realize. I think Orlocks, the first gang. Um so far where it's really hard to define who is what on the board apart from your wreckers who obviously got jump packs on the rest of them a ganger could look like a champion quite easily so yeah. it's it's about like really knowing your opponent's list there's got to be that openness beforehand where you're looking at each of the list and you go right that's what you do i know what i'm up against because it's not fair to kind of suddenly turn around and go oh no that guy with a knife and a stick He's actually um, a champion with this skill and this skill and this skill. It just seems a little kind of um, duplicitous almost. Yeah. And yeah, so really, I think it's the first, like, an, an example in point. I didn't realize Pete's guy had uh, a hazard suit on. And for the first time ever, I'd thrown a hand flamer on Van Saar because I didn't uh. want to just take a spammy <laughs> plasma list. I wanted to take yeah. something interesting. Um, and. I'd I'd waited on this guy getting towards us, but because we hadn't, we'd just thrown a game together quick, so we hadn't really yeah, had time yeah. to explore each other's lists, and I hadn't kind of considered them taking a hazard. Thankfully, it was the only guy he did put a hazard suit on, and um, it meant that the flamer became like something that he had to be con um, he had to be concerned about. Yeah. So that became like a nice little kind of um, board control area of control device that I had access to. Um, but definitely a, a gang where it's really important that you know exactly who is what on the board for how because it really affects how you play the game against yeah. them. Yeah, fair comment. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult, I think, to tell some of these things. So a uh, question of etiquette for, for gaming generally as opposed to just with Orlocks then. When you fight someone, is it a case of you just go, here's my list, and then you point at the models and go, that one's this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, and then that's it, you leave it, and then ignore any other cries of, uh, which one's this again, later on? Or do you just go with the, it's this one? 
Um, personally, I like it to be really open because I think there's. It's not like you're trying to catch each other out. It shouldn't no. be. You, you know, because you could. I mean, you can carry certain items on yourself hidden so that you don't have to model for um for WYSIWYG. Yeah. So I'd argue you don't really need to model an environment suit. It'd be nice to see something that reflected that, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hold somebody against that. But because an environment suit has such a heavy um skill like embedded into it, I want to know who's got that. There's no point me chasing you down with a flamer, shooting setting you on fire just to find out that it was completely ineffective. That that, yeah. that seems a little kind of um gamey to me if you were to do that. It's like it's the same with pistols. You can put sidearms in your jacket. You don't have to model that. But I would argue that if you've got a plasma pistol in your jacket and you just pull that out and shoot somebody point blank, that's a bit of a shitty move. And I I think I try to be as honest as I can. And if I can't represent it on the model, then I try and make my opponent aware of exactly what it is. Because, yeah, if you're running a heavy stubber as a heavy bolter because you haven't got the model yet or you haven't got around to converting it, then you really should be... You should be saying something about it, though. It, it shouldn't be a surprise to the guy when he's he's just about to take like twelve dice worth of shots into the face. Oh yeah, but I'm thinking sort of uh, yeah, obviously as a, as a beginning for etiquette, especially if there's any conversions uh, or uh, lack of representation that you've got on the table at the time, then pointing it out at the beginning of the game is an absolute must. But I'm just thinking about later on as reminders and things. It's like how far do you go with the reminders if you're like constantly being pestered with them, and it's like. Oh, do you like switch lists at the beginning? Like, here's my list. There you go. You can just refer to that whenever. Um, yeah, but uh, then there's also the argument of well, if you go, you know, barreling in towards the closest enemy because that's who you want to attack, and then it turns out that he's got like hazard suits on, and you went in with a hand flamer, and it's like, does that not represent a certain element of the unknown in a real battle situation? Oh no, I mean, I, th- you, I think there's definitely um, merit to playing that way, but in in much the same way that. You, it, do you let the guy come around the other side of the board and see where you've tucked people into cover and stuff? You know, That's it. It, because in reality, you're both starting off at one side of a battlefield. You can only see what the little guy, the the, the little dude, should only be able to see what he can see. In That's reality, it. you're stood over it like a god. You know what I mean? And you can see where things are to a point. And if you do go around the board, you'd be able to see where everyone is. Yeah. I guess that's down to your arbitrator. Now, in a campaign. Um, that's arbitrated, I'd be happy to kind of let people run the lists because I think the arbitrators had to look over all of the lists, make sure they all stack up cost-wise and that they're all game legal. So therefore, yeah, it's not too bad. I'd like to know if, yeah, if anything's modelled as a counter or something like that, I want to know. I guess there is an argument to be made for the element of surprise, but all of the games I've played have been pretty open with regards to I'm taking this, I've got this, this guy's yeah, got yeah. this. But uh, it's not like I'm a, I'd be a stickler for it. it. Like I say, as long as it was being arbitrated, if it was just a skirmish game, I think it, you don't just want surprise after surprise after surprise. But, yeah, where's the line? Like, is it cool to just say, oh, can I just look at that guy's card again? What did he have? Which was the one who had four on grenades? Because then it becomes, yeah, a little bit convoluted maybe. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting point. We, we should get a discussion going on that one in the group, actually. Yeah, I'd be interested to see how different people approach it. Where, do you know? Can I, you see where I, we are? So no, sorry, I was just thinking of what I was going to mention next because um, the other the other noticeable differences that I forgot to mention with the gunners 
is that they also get access to the hazard suits. They've made Brawn a primary skill, and they've then swapped from Savant over to combat. Hmm. So just how they've changed the skills around a little bit for the specialists. Uh-huh. Nobody wants the Brawn skill tree. <laughs> no, especially not um, Cordoy who are lumbered with no. it. Poor bastards. <laughs> I really hope they do something about that when they get around the corridor. But anyway, we're talking about Orlocks. Yeah. <laughs> and then finally, we've got the Orlock Greenhorns, who are, who are the Jews. So they've increased by five credits. Utterly no bonuses um, like on the stat lines. They're, again, they've got access to the Sonoff shotgun with solid rounds. They also get auto pistols, stub guns with the dum-dum rounds. Then into the combat weapons, slightly surprisingly, they've still got access to, to chainsaws. So that's new compared to Gangs of the Hive starting. Then they've also got the obligatory fighting knife, mail, maul. And a little surprisingly, they've also got the two-handed hammer as well. They've then, as a perk over Gangs of the Hive, they've also got the blasting charges, demo charge, frag grenades, crack grenades. They've then also got... Um, also got flak armor, hazard suits, and the mesh armor, mm-hmm. and then drop rig, filter plugs, photo goggles, and respirator. Okay, so a question that immediately arises for me there is that again, traditionally, before all the books came out, correct me if I'm wrong, weren't Jews limited to pistols and close combat weapons? Sorry, you are correct on that, Steve. There we go. So we've got a change there straight away, um, and then of course, obviously, we've got the as you've mentioned, the credits cap that they used to have, and the two-handed hammer that's thirty-five credits straight there for a Jew. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good point. And what um, twenty-five on the chainsaw, which is also over that. Um, it's interesting to note that the basic weapon they do get access to is the sawn off though, which is shite. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, as we've discussed, but you know, I just thought it was an interesting point that again we've we said they've, they've got a, a basic stat line, no surprises, no big changes or anything, even though they are slightly more expensive. But the equipment list that they've got access to seems slightly expanded, and obviously the points cap thing's gone. Yeah. No, which is all very... Um, now, obviously, the big um, question, which we, we I think it's safe to assume that this is um, going to be addressed in the FAQ, mm-hmm. is the fact that they have um, ferocity as a primary skill, but apparently they can't learn skills. They've <laughs> <laughs> got, got a primary skill of ferocity. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. That's, oh my, yeah, that's just wrong. That's got to be wrong. Well, no, not only no, that, they've always had that. No, they always, yeah, they always had ferocity as a primary. But really? the, the real thing, this shouldn't be able, the way it's written in the book, they can't actually access skills. So they've been given a skill that they can't ever get. Yeah. So you can't promote them in any way. There's no way of kind of expanding their skills through the um, through experience. That's got to be an FAQ matter because otherwise why give them a skill list but then say you can't have any of them it literally makes no sense whatsoever so i think that's a safe one to write off and assume that they can actually access that skill that's crazy it, like because I, I read it initially in the goonhammer article before we'd even got our hands on the books yeah. and i was like yeah and then you read it and you're like no that 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 is what it says it says you can't gain additional skills so yeah but hey uh, you know new books all coming out very fastly uh, very quickly after each other 
uh, you know, it, it takes two minutes to put out an FAQ, which I'm sure we'll get shortly. Oh, I hope so. The one I was thinking of was Savagery. And I'm like, what? Because oh, <laughs> no, I was confusing um, ferocity grinders, with savagery. Yeah, that's our yeah. exclusive. And that's exactly why I was like, what? What yeah. the hell? Are <laughs> that would have been a shitty, shitty thing. Corpse grinder skill trees. Yeah, that would have been really shitty. It would have been really weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So moving on, you've got the exotic beasts. So there's the cyber mastiffs. They're identical to they are in Gangs of the Underhive. I was hoping they might have had the option of being hard cased. Yeah, that would have been nice, given that um, we've seen it with um, the Enforcers, and it's such a sexy um, exotic beast. It's so cool. All that sculpt's lush. It, it it looks really nice, but it's really a strong little kind of combat ally to have. Yeah. But let's not dwell on theirs and what yeah. we don't get. That <laughs> oh, reminds me of as well. What's that? The uh, cat cassette tape out of Transformers. Oh, um, escapes me right at the moment. Ravage. Ravage, that's the Ravage one. Ravage yeah. eject. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, I loved that Ravage and Laserbeak. I've been were... looking. I've been looking for a scale one that would fit on one of those bases for ages, and I think what I'll just have to do is get someone a three three uh, D print me one. Sorry, interrupting again. No, no, cool. Right, so um, should we talk about uh, hangers on? New hangers on available to all of. Right then. So we've got some new hangers on. So we've got the Bullet Merchant, so for the Orlocks they're coming at 25 credits, or 75 for everyone else, and their main perk is High Calibre Hookup. So their main benefit is High Calibre Hookup. Uh, just a translation for uh, our non-northeastern uh, England listeners, that's Hookup. Hookup. It's alright, we'll get edited. I was say that was such an accent. <laughs> Hook. <laughs> Hook. It's a, I know, I know. I'm just explaining it to people who don't speak uh, northern. So, while a gang includes a bullet merchant, they treat all types of ammo available through the trading post or the black market as common. In addition, any of these types of ammo that have the limited trait replace that trait, the scarce trait. Yeah, um, bullet merchants just seem like a must-have for all of And to be fair... 25 credits as well. Yeah, it's a steal, isn't it? I mean, it, I, I'm more than willing to find the 75 for a different house and find oh, yeah. it because that's a really powerful kind of thing to have running alongside your gang. I think uh, there's a couple of guys in here that make the difference for losing Savant, and I think he's one of them, isn't he? Because you, you're losing the munition here on your um, on your champions. It's a, it's a way of kind of negating that slightly. Well, you're actually getting the bonus because you make an all-special ammo common. Yeah. So that includes your likes of your Firestorm, then even for your gangers, you've then got your Executioner, your Inferno ammo, then you've got your choke grenades, um, scare grenades, you've got all the special ammo in the Book of Judgment, you've then got your Bolton, then you've got your special ammo in the Books of Peril, and then your Man Stopper and the Frag Auto Pistol ammo as well. Yeah, so yeah, you can just, as long as you've got the cash in your in your stash you can just go and get that with no rarity rolls or yeah and it's no longer limited either well yeah that's a sexy little hanger on that i do like that addition yeah then you've got the grease monkey they're coming at 40 credits now they're an orlock exclusive and their main thing is that they're a bit of a tinkerer and they they like to make things go bigger and faster so their special ability is overcharge 
and so a ganger with grease monkey can overcharge one of their brutes or the jump boosters of their raggers during the pre-battle sequence so obviously you've got to pre-allocate who you're going to boost mm-hmm. and in return mid-battle with that so for your brutes you can add d3 to their movement and attacks that's fucking potentially very very nasty that like chickens yeah. took in an extra three inch on an amber or a, a lugger and an extra possible three attacks as well. That is nasty as. Yeah, well, it isn't all benefits. However, if you roll a one on the D3, your brute will suffer a wound with no saving rolls possible. Yeah, I mean, you'd be willing to take... If you're, if you're taking an overcharged uh, ambot, you don't give a shit about that, do you? <laughs> Not Let's really. be honest, you're just like, I'm going to get you, I'm going to fucking get you. That's what it's all about. It's it's that kind of frantic, crazy style. Of, uh, yeah. Yeah, and... In return, if you put that onto a wrecker, you can add D6 to their movement. Yeah, that's pretty fucking crazy. Yep, so if that stacks with all the other benefits, um, if you're charging with a wrecker, that's potentially a 21-inch charge. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, now now I'm impressed. (laughs) Now you're talking Steve's language. Yeah. Yeah. But again, you don't get it all your way. So if you roll a 1 on that d6, you gain no extra movement and instead you lose one of your actions. Right. So you get just a single action to move. Fans are dice staying firmly in the box. It's as if you're trying to get the pull cord pulled again on your your, your jetpack because <laughs> it didn't quite didn't quite yeah. work out. Um, I did notice something we missed out on records is that um, if you're using template weapons while you're boosting, you hit. You get a minus. You get a minus penalty to hit. Um, don't you? No, they count as unstable. Once that's it. Sorry, that was the yeah. So that's quite a a big risk to take. Well, what? grenades, you you automatically lob them, and it's unstable automatically. Yeah. Okay, so just to clarify that for me, unstable in a normal set of circumstances, unstable only comes into play when you roll the ammo dice and you get the reload, right? Yes. Is that in any way different for? template weapons it's um, not is it templates it's, would it's... normally have to roll the ammo dice yeah but if you're using grenades and anything which has the grenade trait it's yes. automatically an ammo roll i suppose then with the templates as well it'd be the same wouldn't it so you're automatically going straight into that chance that it's going to explode yeah <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm just picturing it like you're getting that you're flying forward you fire a flamer and then the flames are shooting backwards and toasting your jet well that's the thing isn't yeah. it? it you if you wouldn't use um like say a, a fuel propelled flamer and then fly into it essentially which is what you're doing isn't it yeah. you, you, you're catching up with your flamer so yeah it, i can understand why that's there it makes sense I don't think it's to catch you out as a wrecker. I think it's just to put certain limitations on, kind of. I mean, to be fair, they've still got a 12-inch like double move, haven't they? So if you've got a tactics card tucked away somewhere, which allows you to perform like an extra action or something like that, or you do um, Overseer or something, you yeah. can still move 12 inches and then use a Flamer, which is pretty with, cool. With Without the penalty, yeah. You can yeah. just slingshot them across the board using various skills or tactics cards, That's yeah. It. And then of the new Orlock hangers-on, they've also got the prize fighter coming at 40 credits, and they are Orlock exclusive. And their special ability is Bare Knuckle Fighter. In the collect income step of the post-battle sequence, a ganger with the prize fighter may enter, enter them in a fight. If they do so, roll 2d6 and choose the highest, then multiply the result by 10 to see how many credits are earned by the gang. 
However, if, if a 1 is rolled on either d6, no money is made, and if a double 1 is rolled, the prize fighter has been killed and must be removed from the gang's roster. Yeah, again, I think this is a kind of... Um, this is why you've lost Savant on your champs. It's these kind of skill-boosting, money-gathering kind of... Bo- the buffs that are added by these new hangers-on far outweigh... Kind of well, I don't, I don't know if they far outweigh, but they certainly find a balance. Yeah, I'm picturing the scenario. Go right, I'm gonna get my prize fighter, forty creds. Then we go to the post battle sequence and roll double one, and it's like, <laughs> oh man, first fight and he's been killed. Yeah, but if it, what it does though is it frees up because obviously with the, we'll we'll get into this um in the next um Orlock War Room. But because, obviously, you have access to a skill and you can choose a skill of creation, but you can also choose a name for your champ or your leader, which is essentially another skill. So you're getting an extra skill. If you were losing one of those skills to get access to cash after a game or easier access to weaponry or ammo, you've lost the the one benefit that kind of all locks seem to have is that they get their two skills out of the gate. Um. So I can understand why they've done it. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if it isn't kind of a copy and paste error, as if it was a careful kind of consideration for why, you know, that why they have these specific exclusive hangers-on. Personally, I mean, I, I could be completely wrong. Oh, yeah. That's happened occasionally. Yeah, so then continuing to the Brutes. So you've still got the Ambots, which the Orlocks get for 30 credits cheaper nice. at 185 and how much was your Grace Monkey again? Was he 45, 25, 45? Or was he a bit more than that? Uh, he was 40. 40. So, yeah, for roughly the same cost as anyone else has taken an Ambot, you can be taking an Ambot and a Grace Monkey and getting that sweet 3-plus on a movement or attack. Up, up to 3, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite a sexy little uh, addition. Um, then they've also got the the cargo servitor, which is the same as what it was in Gangs of the Underhive. Mm-hmm. And then they've got the servitor Ogren, and that's the same as what it's been in the other house of books. Right, cool. So, nice. uh, yeah, that's us up to uh, hangers on. Well, I think that we've had a really good start at looking into the uh, House of Orlock now and some of the changes that they've had there with the new units and things like that. But that's probably a good place to, to call it for now. Uh, but Pete, thank you very much for coming along and uh, discussing those with us. You're very welcome. I'm sure um, we'll have them back again to discuss um, all of the other goodies that um, House of Iron unlock uh, for Orlock players. Um, it'd be possible uh, if you could write up a couple of lists for us, like a couple of experimental lists maybe for next time as well, and we can have a chat about those and see kind of the difference between your standard vanilla Orlock from Gangs of the Underhive and then kind of what House of Iron can actually potentially chuck as a starter list or a skirmish list. I think that would be an interesting way to kind of tackle it. Uh, yeah, that would be pretty cool if we could do that as well. So in which case, up next we have Blitz and Krieg. Thanks, Steve. Hello, listeners. I am Blitz. And I am Krieg. It feels like it's been whoa, a while since we last had a segment, doesn't it, listeners? Right now, Krieg and I are here in the Murderball Arena, which is going through some changes. Speaking of which, for those of you who are fairly new to some city radio, you might have missed the reasons we were here. That's right! 
We're supposed to give commentary on murder brawl matches, but with the threat of the zombie virus still present, the last season has been delayed, which has been critically detrimental to the sport. You're not wrong, Krieg. The Necromunda Pit Fighting Federation has taken a real hit during these troubled times. You'd think that certain officials and guilders would help fill in the loss of revenue normally generated by Murder Brawl, but no. Let's not get into the politics, Blitz. On the plus side, the MPFF is now looking at finally bringing in Ambot Wars to create content for the fans that doesn't involve reckless social distancing. But where's the blood, the sense of danger? Who wants to see a It's going to be epic! Giant robots reducing each other to piles of scrap with custom weapons never before seen on Ambots! Flamers, swords, lightning claws, awesome blitz! Well, 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 maybe... It's going to be awesome! Well, possibly, maybe... Four bots enter, one bot leaves! Rock'em, suck'em, hippos on stims, blitz! Anyhow, we got one last murder brawl memory left for you listeners. As with any luck, we'll be back to normal match coverage in the new year. But it's a good one. Invite a lot of some city radio listeners. I'm going to recognize one of the participants in this halftime open match. Some context for our listeners. The video is from two seasons back when we ran the last of the halftime novelty challenges. We put in an established fighter, and if anyone from the audience was crazy enough to want to take them on... All they'd have to do is land a single blow without having their heads pulled off, and everyone in the audience would receive a free slice of hot corpse starch. We'll skip ahead to about three audience members in. Well, he did volunteer! I hope someone got him to sign a waiver! Oh, too bad for Junker from Dust Falls. He traveled all the way here to the Murder Brawl Arena for today's matches and sadly has not managed to win the halftime novelty match. But don't worry, folks. We've got more contestants coming up. Krieg, tell Junker what he's leaving with. Junker is leaving with a free trip to the Murder Brawl Infirmary to be tended by our top physicians. He also leaves with his own severed arm buried up his ass to the wrist. And a complimentary Irish mutilated and murder brawl t-shirt. Show him some love. <laughs> Junker, everybody give him a hand. Uh, well, well, not a hand, but... Anyway, the next contestant. Tell us your name and where you're from. Hi, Blitz. I'm Scratchy Jim. And I'm all the way from Brokewind Caverns. Brokewind Cav... I, I can't say I'm familiar with the place. Oh, it's uh, two levels up from Soggy Scrout Trash Lake. Nope, don't know it. Two service tunnels and a half-day hike from Sector 4 Bledge Farm. It's it's next to Splatterwall District. Nope. Good first gulch. Uh, you're making these up now, aren't you? I'm not, seriously. Good first gulch is right next to fucking Steepwaste Rapids. You shitting me. That's only a few levels climbed down from a few days' walk from Big Nobber's Pleasure Dome. Yeah, uh, Big Nobber's Pleasure Dome, so you're, you're from near there. Well, ish. Scratchy Jim from Big Nobber's Pleasure Dome. So as Scratchy Jim signs his waiver, let me remind you all, if he manages to land a single blow on the randomly selected murder brawl fighter that will shortly enter the arena, 
Every audience member gets a free slice of hot cold starch! How's that paperwork coming? We're good? Great! Okay! Vertebral fans, it's time to find out who Scratchy Jim will be facing! Bob the Bludgeoner! Oh, shit! Remember, Scratchy Jim, all you have to do is land one hit, one kick, or one punch, and the match is won. Do you have a weapon with you? Uh, no? Would you care to pick one from this range provided by our sponsor, Kiloton Armaments? Uh, I'll take this. A chainsaw! A classic choice. Get your butt over into that arena and win these people some food! Our contestant is now entering the arena and giving a wave to the crowd. Will they be facing a warm corpse starch? It'll be the first time in six seasons of Murder Brawl, but the crowd are looking hopeful today! Both fighters are in position. And there's the bell! The fighters are off! Ouch! That has gotta hurt! Oh, the bludgeoner catches Scratchy Jim's wrist and snaps him backwards! Sweet golden throat! Oh, the humanity! Bob the Bludgeoner is forcing our contestants' wrists back on him, swinging Scratchy Jim's own chainsaw down and round into his crotch and up through his torso. Ooh, looks like this crowd are gonna go hungry today. The seven-foot-two giant that is Bob the Bludgeoner waves the two severed halves of Scratchy Jim at the crowd. I think there's a mix of joy at the bloodshed, but sadness that these folks won't be getting tasty cornstarch. Blitzer, are you seeing this? Yes, yes, Greg. I, I, I'm getting confirmation. Yes, we have one last contestant coming forward to win the halftime novelty match. Blitzer, uh, are, are we going to be able to go ahead with this matchup? Uh. Can we get a Murder Brawl official down here, please? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the contestant that has come forward from the crowd looks like a small Jew. She can't be more than 15 years old. Can somebody confirm she's serious? We don't want to stunt just to get on camera and the radio or... She is? Are we really gonna... We are? Okay then, bring her over here. It has been confirmed, Fight Fans. Our contestant has been given the go-ahead. Let's say hello to our last contestant. What's your name and where are you from? Uh... Hey. I I'm Becky. Becky Boom! A and I'm from... Well... I guess... I'm from some city. A local girl, huh? Well, uh... Becky? Was it? Are you sure you want to take part in this match? As sure as I am that these people want some cup start. There is a strong chance that you could get smushed, little Jew. Nah, I'll be fine. Well, okay then. Did, uh, did you bring a weapon? Oh, yeah. Uh, there it is. It's something of my own design. It looks like a long stick attached to a ball of rags. What's hiding in there? Don't you like surprises? I don't want to spoil it. He's a prototype. That's all I'm saying. 
Intrigue! Well, okay, if you're sure. It looks like you're struggling to lift that thing. Would you maybe prefer to use one of our sponsored weapons from Kiloton Armaments? Kiloton Armaments for all your weapon needs! Nab it! It's cool. Uh, this thing needs testing, and besides, Kiloton Armaments can't make weapons for shit! Whoa, uh, sorry about that. Can't remember this gets broadcast. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, oh, speaking of which, uh, can you play this uh, as I walk into the ring, please? Uh, sure. Um, can someone please get this to the sound desk? Okay, let's get it on! As our contestant Becky Boom signs her waiver, let's find out what- uh, do your fighters have to sign a waiver too? You know, just in case. I sure don't want to be sued by some grieving widow. Uh, well, uh, what? Uh, um, yeah, kind of. The, uh, the fighters have a contract, and in the contract it states that should any harm come to them in a murder brawl arena, then legal action cannot be taken against their opponent, and that all rights are forfeit. Oh, okay, cool. I better get this thing down to the arena. Bye! So, uh, who is the, uh, the Jew gonna fight? Bullshit! Um, this is uh, certainly going to be an interesting matchup. Weighing in at 390 pounds and standing at a height of 8 feet and 2 inches, our contestant's opponent is Sumpstacks Mahoney! And coming in at less than... 5 foot? Uh, play the music she wanted. It's the Juve with a lot of heart and a lot of guts. Not to mention a, a lot of confidence. A Becky! A I can't put my finger on it, Creek, but I'm getting, getting a feeling about this one. Agreed! There's a certain uh, electricity in the air! Instead is taking swipes at the Jew, who who is evading each attempt. Is it me or does that weapon of hers suddenly seem a lot lighter? Wait, the rags are smoking! It looks like the rags are burning away from the end of her weapon as she continues to dodge the giant fists of Substacks Mahoney. <laughs> Smile, you son of a Are the Emperor's Golden Throne! Get us a replay for that now! Creep! Did you see anything? I, I left my photo goggles at home, Blitz. That flash was too bright to see anything. Whoa, Blitz, did you see that? Indeed I can, Krieg. It looks like Substack Mahoney has been split down to his midriff, collapsed to his knees, his torso ripped forward, the half splaying down like the leaves of a plant. A huge pile of intestines lay spread out in front of him. But where's the Jew? We've got a replay coming up in slow-mo now, Blitz. Here we can see Sumpsex Mahoney lunging in with an overpowered swing. As his momentum takes him through, the Jew Becky Boom flips backwards. In the split second that she lands, it looks like she's activated her weapon. The rags have fallen away. We can see it's some type of, um, of hammer. 
The blue glow suggests it might be a power weapon. But, but that's not all. Craig, look, look. Whilst Mahoney is still reeling, she jumps forward, and it looks like small jets have ignited on the sides of the hammer, carrying her up over Mahoney's head. Inventive. And then as quickly as she shot up, she shoots down, driven by the jets of the hammer, as it impacts down on Mahoney's head. You can just make out through the flash the shockwaves rippling through his body and exploding his flesh. It looks like the weapon powers down and the jewel lands right in front of Mahoney, just as his still standing body tips forward and his intestines spill out over. Oh. <laughs> hey, it works! Rising like some kind of xenoparasite from a chest cavity, the juve has appeared out of a pile of viscera. She really does have a lot of guts. She's covered in them. Let's get a word with our victor, Brecky Boom. How do you feel? I feel hungry for cornstarch. And, um, like, might I possibly need a shower? I mean, I thought that guy smelled bad on the outside. She's not wrong on both counts. Thanks to our contestant, Becky Boom, everyone in this arena is getting free corpse starch before we continue with today's lineup. Let's get that corpse starch in here. Do we have any rat barbecue slices? Can someone pass me a towel or some napkins or something? Oh, and a slice of all meat flavor, please. So what exactly was that doohickey you hit some stacks Mahoney with? Wait, it's of my own design. It's kind of like a double-handed thunder hammer, uh, but with anti-grav and uh, micro-rocket jets. <clears throat> Excuse me, I, I, you made that? How old are you? Fifteen and three-quarters. Uh, give or take, I think. Oh, that is impressive. Can't argue with that, Krieg. I think this kid is going places. Carried by a rocket-powered power hammer, apparently. This weapons expert at your service. Here's my card. Let me know if you know of anyone who needs some weapons sorted. I'll hook him up. Funny you should say that, but let's get back to the lineup for the second half of Murder Bra! So there you go, fight fans. That's how we happened to meet Becky Boom. And subsequently hook her up with the Hertzian Guild's job for some city radio. It's funny how things like this work out. That it is, Cree. That it is. Now, thank you for joining us, listeners. Hopefully, when you hear us next, it'll be for another beautiful match of Murder Bros! Or as we watch robots beat the shit out of each other! Yeah, yeah, maybe. Anyway, that's it. Until next time. Later, haters! You're listening to Sump City Radio. Welcome back, listeners. Uh, Grit here from Blitz and Krieg after such a long yeah. absence. Um, it really did feel like we've not heard from them in quite a while. Yeah, I, I, I was starting to miss them, to be honest. And uh, for anyone who had questions about how they became so closely um, associated with Becky and so protective of her, well, there you go. Looks like that was the little acorn that grew into a massive oak tree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
There we go. A bit of official uh, some city cannon going on there. <laughs> well, I'm sure, as the listeners can probably hear, we are up on the roof of the um, some city radio shack. Uh, it's not going to be long till we hear from the some city mayor, apparently. So we thought we'd get a much better view from up here. Um, but whilst we're waiting, it's time for your letters. It's your letters. It's your letters. It's your letters. It's your letters. Okay, Steve, so first letter, we've got one here, um, and it's from, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Colote, uh, from the cult, who is the cult adept of the Anderskink Star Priest, apparently. That's quite the title, isn't it? Yeah. Um, right, what kind of voice shall I approach for this one? Okay. Uh... <laughs> Pleasant. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, right, because I did a, like a raspy voice yes. for the yeah. Yes. So he's. I was thinking about doing something daft, though. You know, like you're doing Euro Trash, where you give them all stupid voices as opposed oh, to yeah. appropriate ones. Uh, Christ, that's a retro throwback there, Chris. <laughs> Euro Trash. When was the last time that? Aired? Jesus Christ! It must have been nineties, <laughs> was it? Yeah, but, the, but like they all that. they oh. gave them all like Scouse and Brummy accents, didn't they? When they had oh, these, that's what yeah. They did, yeah. Uh, Greetings to the presenters of our favourite show in the Hertzian Guild Wireless. My name's Kilotes, leader of the Silent Redemption, an order dedicated to the worship of the one true emperor. I, I herald from the ashes of Hive Secundus, from the ruins of that desolation. I had to fight my way through wastes to reach the sprawling outskirts of Hive Primus, knowing the endless opportunities are presented. My brethren found cracks in the outer walls, and being... Well used to the shafts and tunnels, we eventually made our way inside to a place called the Blue Sump Creek. Through hard work and patient devotion, we found a place in the trust of the folks around here. We waited patiently in the shadows, blending into life as simple mining folk. The citizens suspected nothing untoward. Yeah, our blue appearance may startle some, but many put it down to the time spent in the deep mines, working so close to the Blue Creek region that it derives its name from. Many can't remember if we have always bore the turquoise shoe upon our skin. As a gang, we've considerable difficulties in circumstances beyond our control and have prevented the fights we've tried to organise. All the boys were ready to take out a newly drafted in Enforcer Patrol, Hunt, Tyler, Cartwright, Carlin, Skelton and Dodds, just to name some. But when we got there, Lord Helmwald put a spanner in the works and pulled the patrol back. Our man Jackson was not happy, looking his mining laser all the way to some zone called the Swan Sea. No, you wouldn't be, really, would you? Thankfully, that third arm helps lighten the load. Yeah, absolutely. That's a big bit of ordnance to drag around the place, to be fair. But third arm, <laughs> third arm, yeah. yeah, that'll do it. Um, yeah, the blue skin thing, I was kind of like, hang on, there's only a certain number of things that are blue skin. Smurfs, avatar creatures, whatever they're called. Uh, well, exactly. Navi, by the way. I think they're called out of oh, avatar. Oh, that was it, the Navi, yeah. yeah big three-toed cat people uh, our second dust... our, braids. <laughs> <laughs> our second dust up was against some butcher boys named the Sweeney Todds but just as we was about to throw down all the whole sector was put into lockdown for some sort of zombie virus Carmichael the Unstoppable our aberrant smashed everything in sight with his hammer for days bit of a temper on him Mm. Uh, so after months of seclusion the boys were ready to flex their muscles and expand our territory Jefferson is itching to try out his web gun Jones and Lewis have taken to playing rapid fire in the backyard like they hear on the radio show with their auto guns uh-huh. and, and Jose is listening for Klaus's tips for his shock whip 
<laughs> well, it's nice to say it's catching on, eh? We could start yeah. a trend. <laughs> uh, we ventured out into the open again, and it seems the filthy Cordor gang in the neighbouring zone have erected a shrine to their god emperor, some ramshackle construction with a monstrous bell on top. <laughs> yeah. We do show our uh, immaturity sometimes, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Juan Carlos and Rodriguez overheard two of their kind calling at the Church of the Numinous Axes. They'll soon hear the thump of Fernandez's seismic cannon. Anyway, I'm sure Salacious Paul will know all about it before anyone else does. Keep up the good work. We all love listening, especially Pops the Familiar. It has kept us entertained through this forced isolation. Love, Colotes, leader of the Silent Redemption. Well, wasn't that nice, eh? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> a proper scout's name, that Juan yeah. Carlos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should have done a um, scarf here, shouldn't I? Carlote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But uh, a lot of nice uh, references in there. Clearly, they do listen to the show, so uh, do, many thanks for sending do, in yeah. that letter. And it's um, it's nice to hear uh, that we're keeping their familiar pops entertained, so that's all good. Um, that's why we do it. Right, okay, so we've got the second one here. Uh, Dear Scummer and Underhiver. I'm assuming that's referring to the two of us. We Mm -hmm. are both Scummers and Underhiver, and your name, obviously, Hive Scum, and mine's Underhiver, so... Yeah, so... (laughs) I think the letter has arrived at the correct location. (laughs) Dear Scummer and Underhiver. So it's definitely found the right address. Um, I and the people of the Underhive for Basic Eating, or Pube, as it's apparently otherwise known. Uh, we're delighted to hear that you've got the little chef Big Big Crumb on your broadcast. I and the pubes were diligently yeah. taking notes on how to serve phalanxes since we recently caught a pair. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to read this out, but this is shots fired as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. We prefer Big Big's style of using hunting, uh, of using uh, free roaming critters over Cannabella's cage fed options. We what? eat. Yeah. Now, I believe you can clarify um, that we she doesn't use cage fed. No, um, it's a an enclosure that they're in. They're not in little cages, and the enclosures are actually quite large. They have to be locked because otherwise they get out. They're bloody smart. Well, exactly. You don't leave your eggs loose in the cupboard to roll out when you open the door, do you? You put them in the box. That just makes sense. But anyway. Uh, we eagerly listened to your feedback, excited to try it for ourselves. We were horrified to hear that the little chef has been maimed by the incompetence of yourselves and associates. What? Yeah, shot fired. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, we can and... to stop broadcasting this stuff. It gets, it gets worse. You and your team are barely worthy of working in a corpse farm, <gasps> although I imagine Cannabella would thrive there. Dean Eckrock. Yeah. I had a summer working in a corpse farm. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good, honest work. <laughs> Absolutely. Right, well, um, you'll be hearing from us, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be sure kind of better this. we get our propagandist on that. Yeah, yeah, a cease absolute, and desist. Absolutely, mate. Um, okay, uh, third one. Uh, hi, guys. I just wanted to write a small message and say thank you for doing this. I work uh, frontline NHS, and you guys have got me through the last few weeks of going uh, from job to job in this crazy time. There's nothing better than a little time away in the underhive tuning into the sump. I'm very nearly up to date on episode 6 as we speak, and I just wanted to say thanks. After listening to your first episode, it had me get all the stuff piecemeal for Dark Uprising, and now a game that as a child I want to play, I will be soon. You Yay. guys are genuinely doing a service, not just to the hobby, but to the players. I hope you get another one out, 
as I've gotten used to you two in my ear holes. It does say ear, don't worry. <laughs> thank, thank you again uh, for a bit of respite in this crazy time. Oh man, and that's from Andrew Page Towers. Oh bless him. Yeah, no, that's that's really nice. I mean, we're just a couple of idiots in a shack talking about um, the comings and goings in Necromunda, and if we can do anything when you're out there doing that important shit, if we can make it easier in any small way then that that's just massive for us thank you so much and uh we've got a doozy coming your way anyway so hopefully yeah. you've, you've <laughs> caught up to episode eight and uh you're ready for episode nine but if you i don't think anyone's ready for episode nine anyone could be ready <laughs> this for is getting split into two i swear it, yeah. it's gonna be interesting to see what the viewership's gonna be like on these two episodes getting dropped at the same time and we'll end up with like the second half having more views or something i can see that happening and it'll just be like why <laughs> why have we got weird numbers like this you've not even heard the first half of the show yeah but we'll know we'll know <laughs> and this last one um I think this one's for you to read out, Stephen. Oh, yeah, and it's kind of in the same vein as the one that you just read out, really. Um, so I've slipped this into the pile for us to read. It says, Just wanted to tell you that the podcast has been one of the few beacons of normalcy for me in the last few months. Listening and re-listening to it allows me to 100% get out of my work mindset. I am a paramedic in Texas and on a disaster strike team. So to you, Chris and Adele, thank you. Nicholas Janikowski. Um, now, that name seemed really familiar to me, and I worked out after a little bit of digging around exactly why, and that's because he posted up this message in the group. Uh, it says, hey, Sumpers, anyone know where I can get dice and templates in the US? So due to a winter cleaning mix-up, whilst at work, my girlfriend accidentally threw out the wrong box, uh, which had my dice, templates, cards, and the card tiles from Underhive and Bad Zone. All my models and terrain were in a separate box. I have the money to just get Dark Uprising again, but I really don't need all of it. Um, the GW site is very limited, and my friendly local gaming store is out, thanks in advance. So I messaged him directly when I saw this and sort of tried to establish the extent of the horror to what had happened. Uh, and he said that literally he had like all the gangs except Slave Ogrins. And um, yeah, so all of that got thrown out and we're talking about priceless cards that you can't get hold of anymore unless you want to pay through the nose for it <laughs> and then the card tiles as well and it's like my heart bleeds for the guy you know that's horrible yeah on top of like with andrew before being out there and yeah. doing such an important job in a time like this it's like yeah that's not the kick in the nuts that you really want when you get home is it yeah, I did suggest on that post as well that maybe instead of looking for places to get new cards and uh, templates and all that, that instead you look for a place to bury a body. But uh, he was quite <laughs> adamant that he wanted to keep his girlfriend. So I've had a rummage around in the prize box and over here at Some City Radio, and we're going to send him a set of the original bronze and red Goliath dice. And also we've got some of the Art of War acrylic Necromunda templates that Art of War Studios provided for us. So we're going to send those over to him. He doesn't know any of this, obviously. I've not even asked him for an address or anything yet. It might have been a bit of a giveaway. But I thought, he, you know, if that kind of thing happens, it would be a nice nice little bit of a pick-me-up for him if we could send him something yeah if we're in a position to make his day a little brighter then absolutely man yeah and uh, that's what i like to think that we can do for other people as well so <laughs> mind you we're going to get a slew of letters now going, oh, oh my girlfriend's thrown all my stuff away please send me boxes of necromunda no one time deal sorry guys <laughs> uh is that all the letters done it is yeah bud yeah awesome right that'll bring us on to the uh, thank you section then i guess really 
Okay, so let's start off our thank yous with Tony Rhodes for stepping in and helping out with the first segment of War Room in this episode, and also for just a programme or website, it's kind of somewhere between the two, called Zencaster, uh, which is great for podcasting. Um, so it looks like we're going to be using it from now on, assuming that the slight minor issue that I had with it, which means that we're actually re-recording this, this is the second time that we've done this, um, if that works out, then that'd be great. Um, so yeah, cheers Tony. Yeah, um, and speaking of War Room, uh, we also had uh, guest host uh, Pete Adamson in, so thanks to you, bud, for talking us through um, the first bit of our locks. We'll get you back to discuss things in more detail at another point. Yeah, cheers, Pete. Um, so hopefully both of those guys are going to make repeat appearances. Yeah, it'd be good to see them both again. And then uh, Sten for sending us um, 3D printed conveyor belts for our boards. Um, I see it sending us. I've still got both of them at the moment so Steve just, when did we get those? Steve just has to look at a picture of them at the moment but <laughs> I'll, I'll print them out on paper and then do little cardboard cutouts and just <laughs> stick them on stands <laughs> just poo hammer it yeah. <laughs> and then we've got John Plaud uh, for all of the cards that he sent us that are being sent out to um, very lucky winners uh, as we speak yeah, uh, okay. Uh, Michael Monks, uh, or Mr. Monks as I call him, um, for listening to the podcast so much that he's actually now getting told off by his wife. Um, I can't even tell you the number of times that he's listened to this. I don't think he could tell you either. Um, so he's also recently donated a set of cards and dice for the prize box, which will probably work its way into the next ooh, two episodes at some point, I imagine. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for that, Mr. Monks. Yeah, cheers, Michael. Um, and a personal thank you to Michael as well. Uh, you know why, you sexy bastard. <laughs> Speaking of uh, personal thank yous, <laughs> that, that leads to some questions there, Chris, but maybe another time. Um, yeah, I've got a load of people I need to thank this month personally because they've just helped me out with either sending me bits or something else along those lines um, so yeah Panny Mouser Taras T Chase Reinhardt Tim Eagling Jim Begley and Chris King if you are listening thank you guys so much for your help this month with uh, the hobby side of things for me and it's really meant a lot so thank you oh that brings us on to acknowledgements doesn't it it's so uh, in which case then um, first off then I might as well do this one I've not mentioned it I think in the last episode maybe the one before that as well but people have still been sending in well wishes to Adele um, so I thought I'd give you an update as to what's happening with her um, she's come out the other end of her chemo treatment now and she's got an appointment, appointment at the hospital to see a specialist on the 21st of December and hopefully that'll be an appointment where we get an idea of where things go from here and and if she's gonna get an all clear or how that happens so you know fingers crossed for that and hope that all goes well but again i'll say this on her behalf um she has been very appreciative of all the thanks in that in some cases has been direct to her as well but some of it's been in the messages in the group so uh, thank you very much for that guys it really means a lot changing the tone quite significantly um this plug our merch so yeah winter is coming it's getting cold outside we had our first couple of days of zero temperature outside so why not make yourselves nice and warm throughout the winter period by getting some of our sump city radio hoodies i am sat wearing mine right now in fact it very rarely comes off unless it gets ridiculously warm in here um, so yeah, there's those. There's also the uh, Scrunt t-shirts, uh, Becky Boom t-shirts are now available as well. If you want to grab one of those, and uh, they're pretty cool as well. Add mine finally turn up. Um, links will be in the description for this episode. Uh, additionally, we've got Spotify. 
Um, our Spotify playlist, Some City Radio, The Music Hours, is available to anyone on Spotify. Uh, you can even add your own tracks into the list for the kind of thing that you listen to whilst you're playing Necromunda or whilst you're hobbying. Uh, so please do that. It's been great to see all the tracks that people have added on there. And uh, as a result, when I had my sort of 2020 wrap-up from Spotify the other day, it told me that I had a ridiculous number of new uh, artists that I ended up listening to as a result of that. So thank you very much. Um, also, for plugs that we've not done in a while, those of you that want some extra supplements, you might not have heard of Carl Johnston's PDF that he did, which was for the Book of Life. He's also done separate PDFs for artwork, which you can print out and put onto your scenery. Uh, so you can have like little posters and things like that. We'll put the link for his Instagram in the description of the show, and he's got his Google Drive link on that, so you can go and check all that, all the stuff. Uh, what does that bring us to, Chris? Um, I think we need to thank our new periods. Oh, indeed we do, yes. So, do you want to go with the first one? <laughs> you bastard. Uh, Cadaver Inquis. <laughs> <Two> times. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to uh, take the William... nice next easy one, yeah? <laughs> yeah, sure. William Young. <laughs> um, Mark Schroeder, upgraded to Bounty Hunter. You legend, thank you. Yeah, John Reinhardt Svig. Uh, Andres Gonzalez. Johannes Summerlade. And James Weeks. Thank you very much for joining the Patreon, guys. I say this every time, and because I say it every time, I don't actually feel bad in saying it anymore because, you know, I've just become used to it now. It does mean so much to us for the people who have joined Patreon because it is making a huge difference, especially during like, the last year that we've had, the year from hell. Um, so, yeah, it's made a, so much of a difference, guys. Thank you so much for supporting us. It really means a lot. Ah, that brings us on to competition announcements. Um, and this was kind of off-the-cuff one that we did last time, didn't we? We didn't have any sort of run-up to this or any pre-plan for it. It was just like, a, why not do this? That's exactly how it went. I believe it was, let's do this. And I said, yes, let's do that. <laughs> the exciting decisions <laughs> behind the scenes at some city radio. Oh, honestly, So, anyway, yeah. uh, what I will do is I will insert some appropriate music here. And what we decided to do was haikus. So this was an interesting one, because when we put up the post for this in the group, it actually turned out that quite a lot of you like doing haikus. Um, so there were so many of them. There were a lot. I know that some of them weren't necessarily intended for winning prizes, but there were still lots of them. So after much debate, we decided on a couple of winners for... And this is for the um, various sets of dice and two sets of cards that we had. I believe it was the Goliath cards left over from the previous episode and the Open Hive War cards as well. <clears throat> I'll start with the first one then. And for the Purple Escher dice... Awoken from Chem Slumber by Felix Farts to Face. Such is the life of Escher. And that was by Panny Mouser. So, well done, Panny. You got yourself some dice on the hey, way. Hey, well done, Panny. Hey. Okay. Um, right, I need to adopt a different voice for this one, so... <sighs> I've seen that told me. Oh, very interesting. I'm sure you'll agree. And that was for the Red Goliath dice. And uh, that was by... Jess Lee Simpkins. Yeah. Um, so, people might go, Oh, Vix, he's part of the show. He just comes and helps us out, you know. He's still a listener like everyone else, or at least I hope he bloody listens to it. Maybe he just listens to his bits, I don't know. Anyway, I thought he was actually deserving of those dice. I thought that was a really good one, I like that. No, I, I have to agree with you, yeah. And we do look at them all, and we do consider which one... It's just which ones appeal to us at the time, isn't it, Yeah, really? exactly. There's no bias or anything. We just look at the actual bit entries. 
Um, okay, so the next one is for the Open Hive War cards, and this is it. Hot Sunday's days pass. Gun loaded, gore spilled, cred spent. The rush of cruel life. And that was by Marek... Insert text-to-speech here. Marek Shimonowicz. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you, Marek. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Marek. Well done. They'll be on their way to you um, at some yeah, time. We'll get in contact with you, get your address. So, yeah, well done. Okay, so the next one, next one was for the Goliath cards, um, and it reads as such. Corpse grinders brought smoke. Van Sar cannot see to shoot. Game over. Rip and tear. And that was Chris Thompson who won those. So Yay. thank you, Chris. Um, Corpse grinder one, I like it. <laughs> you uh, need to take the uh, nerf on terrified into account and whatever Van Sar get this next coming couple of weeks. Mm. So. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid uh, rule update. <laughs> So, so, what else have we got? And the next one is for the Flame Dice. And this is it. Hive Primus stands strong. In her belly, life is cheap. You will die screaming. Pretty accurate, <laughs> really. Yeah, uh-huh. Oh, that's um, the condensed experience of Necromunda life, really, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> and that was by James Ewing. So, well done, James. Okay, and the next one's for the Yellow Escher Dice. The humble melter, sometimes, may be overlooked, but click, home, buy scum. <laughs> I really like that one. That's really good. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that was Rob Davis, so congratulations, Yay. Rob. Well done, Rob. So that was all the stuff from the last competition. So So that's probably all the competitions are going to run for a while, is it, Steve? I, I, I don't know. Uh, not quite. No, we, we've got one more. Um... So, as some of you may recall from the posts in our Facebook group, this month, or rather last month now, because we are now in December, this has taken a really long time to get this episode out. Um, so, yeah, in November, Some City Radio turned one year old. And what a year it's been. We've seen some fantastic things happen for the hobby in these past 12 months that have taken the scope of the game far beyond what it's ever been in the past. And we've seen this slow and steady increase in support for the actual podcast itself. Uh, from this brilliant community that's growing up around it. Uh, as such, we wanted to celebrate by getting some awesome prizes for our listeners. And I don't think we've done too badly. Uh, we contacted some top people and they donated the following. Anvil Industries, which is one of my favourite go-to bit sites. In fact, my Cordal gang owe all of their pumpkin heads to Anvil, so they've donated two £25 vouchers to their site. And that's a lot of goodies you can get with 25 quid's worth of stuff from them. Nice. We've also got War Game Tournaments, who are donating one of their massive MDF crane kits with 12 shipping containers, uh, which I can say to you from having seen one in person, and interestingly, someone had already graffitied an SER logo on it. No idea how that happened. Anyhow, uh, it is a really impressive set piece, uh, especially with the addition of the shipping containers. In fact, now I think about it, um, other than the official Games Workshop terrain that I've picked up over time and the homemade stuff, the rest of my terrain is actually made up entirely from these same sets uh, that board game tournaments do. 
Uh, part of the reason why I like that is because they've got 2.5 inch high levels uh, for the, the platforms. So as a result, um, you get gangs like Gene Steel Occultists and Goliaths and Vansar actually thinking about it, um, whose base movement is four. Um, so it means you can actually move up a level and still continue another action at the top rather than using two actions just to get up a ladder. But if that wasn't enough, Wargame Tournament have also been generous enough to donate some packs of mixed pre-painted shipping containers, some fan boats, some packs of walkways, which I absolutely love their walkways, and some Rust City Ruins and some of their Wide City Fast Ruins. Yeah, that's a tonne of stuff. That's got to be it. Surely that's it, Stephen. <laughs> there is more. Uh, we cut... Whoa, 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 whoa! <laughs> We uh, contacted Art of War Studios because they had a sale on um, and when they had the sale on I'd thought, you know what, I'm going to pick up some of their tokens because they're, they're really cool. Um, and the beautiful bastards that work there provided us with a set of their ultimate underhive tokens um, which cover more status effect in the game than you can shake a stick at. And they stand out so much more when you're playing with these ones as opposed to the ones from the box when you buy the, the box sets uh, because they're made out of nice chunky and in some cases neon acrylic and they just look really cool. Um, side note, I knew about these tokens for ages as I've known people who got them a while ago and raved about them and they've expanded the series since then. But what I didn't realise is that Art of War Studios now do their own terrain as well. So go check out their website whilst you're waiting to see who wins this competition. Right, so that's all. But that's not all. There's more. We've got more competition prizes. <laughs> what? 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 <laughs> we've also had versatile terrain throw in some stuff as well. So we've got two lots of £25 store credit on their website. And I've just had an order from versatile terrain turn up. Um, and this is like the third time I think I've ordered something from them. Uh, and again, uh, thank you to uh, Chris King for helping me out with that one. The nameplates that they do are really cool, even when they first started a couple of years ago, but bloody hell, now the options that they've got on the site, geez, there is 40 fonts, 50 plus icons, icons are like wingding font icons, uh, like with playing card suits, radioactive symbols, human skulls, uh, you can even get two of the runic font types that they have uh, to be used as icons as well. There's options to have indents, rivets, more technical plates with pipes, different base sizes, so yes you can have an M-Bot with a nameplate that reads Mr. Fluffy if you want. The list of options goes on. They even provide STL files now for those of you that are lucky enough to own your own high quality 3D resin printers, which because a friend of mine literally has just bought one, I can tell you it takes a lot of work to actually deal with them, like curing the resin, washing things off, making sure you've got all the right structures, supporting it as it prints it out. There's a hell of a lot of work that goes into it to make sure it actually prints very well. So even if you do have one, you could just save yourself the extra work and buy them straight from the versatile terrain. So yeah, some lucky sods are going to be walking away with that. Well, we know that has to be everything. No. <laughs> no, there's more. Okay. Um, our old friend Kevin from Promethean Forge, um, who was joint is joining the fellowship of Sump City Radio's anniversary, as I'm now going to call it, um, and is going to provide... I need to put an echo effect on this. $200! Worth of his Promethean Forge terrain. That's more than he donated when he was on the show! 
And if you haven't heard that, that was episode four, by the way, with Hive Aid. So go back and listen to that because it's actually got a really nice interview in there with Kevin about how he got into terrain making as well. Um, so if you want to see the awesomeness that is terrain, you can go and check that out now at prometheumforge.com. Or if you're in the Europes, uh, you can go to www.foregroundpublishing.co.uk because um, if it ships from there to you, it cuts down massively on shipping prices and things like that. They do also have an Australian uh, distributor as well. Um, we'll, we'll chuck the link for that in the description. Nice. Uh, if you want to do me a personal favour as well, go check out uh, the Promethean Forge's Facebook page and go and like that. Uh, you can do that right now. Yep. See where your phone is? Right there. Go unlock it. Open up Facebook. Search for Promethean Forge. There it is. And like an achievement unlocked. So how's that for a slice of fried gold? No, come on, Stephen. You've got to tell well, me. Well, wait, like... there is more. There is more. Oh, actually, no, there isn't. I'm lying. I'm nah. completely fucking lying. There's no more. But, I mean, come <laughs> on. How much more do you want? All of those prizes are up for grabs. The way that this is going to shake down is as follows. We're going to divide this loot up into two separate prizes. Now, one of these will be exclusively for our gang tier or above Patreons, and the other will be open to everyone who is a member of our Facebook community page. So yes, that means that our Patreons will be able to technically enter the same competition as everybody else, as well as the Patreon-only one. Um, so their chances of potentially winning are doubled? Is that how math works like that? I don't know. Something like that. So to be clear, here are the steps that you will need to follow to enter the competition. If you are a gangeteer or above Patreon, step one, go to the official competition post on patreon.com. Step two, add a single comment of, oh, what a lovely tea party. Oh, what a lovely tea party. Step three, resist the urge to post any additional comments, just simply because I want to keep it nice and clean and not lose people's comments in threads of uh, various comments that are appearing. And congratulations, you are now entered into the competition. Okay, and so if you aren't a Patreon, step one, sign into Facebook and search for some city radio community group. Step two, there will be questions. Now don't fib to me that there aren't any, because there are. We've, we've had people check this on multiple different platforms. The questions are there. What sometimes disappears is the tick box that says, I'm not going to be a dick. Um, now, whilst we would prefer you to tick that box, if it doesn't appear, we can't blame you for that but you can answer the other three questions. It says it at the end of every episode, answer the damn questions. Okay. So, and you need to answer the questions so that we know you're not a robot or some kind of spam account, so we're not Skynet trying to take over the group. If you fail this step, there is no hope for you and you will be declined. If Goliaths can do it, so can you. Step three. Find the official competition post for this broadcast, which will most likely be pinned to the top of the group. Step four. Add a single comment of... Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. That comment again is... Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. Step five. Resist the urge to post additional comments on that thread. Let's keep it nice and clean so that we can see the individual comments of every individual person who is answered. Congratulations, you have now been entered into that competition. Now, I would have loved to draw the winners of this competition at Christmas, but considering that we're on the 9th of December now... Um, Hopefully I'm going to get this episode finished by tomorrow because Cyberpunk also comes out then and I would like to play the game. And we've then... 
so what the idea is guys is that we're supposed to be doing a Christmas special and that is getting shorter and shorter the longer that this particular episode takes to finish don't you this right I'm not going to finish it before Christmas it's so going to be just... hi guys bye guys yeah hi bye <laughs> here's the next episode we're gone um, so yeah so there's not going to be there's going to be virtually no time between the end of between when this episode comes out and the next one if we're trying to get a Christmas special out um, so we're going to run this until the end of January, which is likely when we're going to be getting the, the episode out after that. So um, hopefully that's going to be a better start of a year for everyone when we get round to January anyway. But for two people in particular, it's going to be a very good year. Well, I can't really add much to that, Stephen, um, beyond that some lucky bastards that's going to be winning themselves that haul. Well, two lucky bastards that are going to be winning themselves yeah. that haul. So, so, good luck, everyone. Yeah, may the odds ever be in your favour. Yeah, we do video the draws as well, just to make sure it is done fairly. Uh, we enter everything into a random selection website, and then it picks something out from there. Uh, we've not had to post the videos yet, but we've got them. Uh, anyway, it looks like that pleasure bar just turned up. Oh, hi. And look at that, you can see where all our taxpayers' money's going. That's probably the most ostentatious barge I've ever seen. I mean, it looks like a giant jeweled cock, and, and he looks like <laughs> the diamond encrusted bell end on the top of it there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where you find that many shiny gems in the underhive. I mean, I've got to say, I'm surprised it's staying afloat with all of the added crap on it. I think of all the spiders that had to die for that. Oh, looks like he's going to say something. Right, we've got a pretty good view from up here. Right, in which case, then, time for the fold out chair. I want to get comfortable for this one chair or chairs did you bring me one uh no i thought the climb up here is treacherous enough with one and that you'd have brought your own to be honest oh no that's fine i'll just uh sit up on the uh anti-aircraft gun we'll get a better view from here anyway fair enough thank you citizens of sam city for coming here today to bask in my magnificence i've been told that the citizens of sam city are unhappy with the current conditions regarding the presence of the plague zombie virus that has been uh, plaguing us for quite some time. Can now. you believe he's still spouting this bullshit? Now you, know, now you all know me. You all know that I'm actually. Honestly, it feels like he's had a stroke or something because no yeah, probably heat stroke actually me. thinking about the number of tanning lamps that he must have been under, but he's <laughs> literally just spouting nonsensical sentences with strong so affirmations at this point. It's true. High citizens call themselves so called scientists. Keep telling you to wear protective clothing, to stay away from the zombies. This is fake reports from big fake scammers. They're just trying to sell you these things. I mean, things. with this and the whole election debacle, I think we're going to end up with fucking riots if somebody doesn't get them out of office. Yeah, yeah you're not wrong. Uh, the whole system's pretty much rigged these days, isn't there? So there's not really much you can do. Holy shit, the barge is gone. I mean, literally, it's gone. Chris, please tell me that wasn't you in the anti-aircraft gun. What? No, no. Look, man. Huh? Anti-aircraft rounds don't create an atom bomb-like vapor cloud that's rainbow-coloured and... Is that fucking glitter? Uh, yeah, that, that that's glitter. What the... They also don't tend to have fireworks that explode into unicorn shapes in the sky and... Oh, and that one was a giant hand throwing up a V sign. Oh, oh shit! shit. Uh, have, you, have you got your data slate? Yeah, I'm on it. Hey, Mr. Hatsko, what happened? 
things, stuff. Look, Becky, that report that you sent us. Yeah. What about it? You've been making bombs, right? Yep. I finished making a load of them for that Mr. Fox guy earlier today. Yeah, I, I did wonder. So, uh, here's the thing, Becky. I don't suppose by any chance that you put fireworks and glitter into those bombs, did you? Yeah. How'd you know that? Becky, do me a favour and see if that ganger, um, what's her name? Jetta, see if she's about. I think we need to have a word with her. Uh, okay. I, I'll, I'll get her. I have to say, mate, Steve, apart from the smell of burning flesh, it's pretty bloody spectacular. All them fireworks, removal of political representatives. Maybe we should, I don't know, like start a tradition of this, do it every year? Uh, yeah, uh, that would certainly keep the elected officials on their toes, wouldn't it? Some kind of a holiday dedicated to excessive amounts of fireworks and uh, the possibility of them being blown up. Uh, anyhow, listeners, I suppose you better deal with this situation and leave you to it. So uh, thank you once again for tuning in to Sun City Radio. Stay safe, and we shall see you next time. Bye-bye. See you later, guys. You've been listening to Sump City Radio. Join us next time for more hijinks in the hive and all things Necromunda. Remember to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. If you want to get more involved, join our growing Facebook community page. Just remember to answer all the damn questions. Do you want your letter read out on the show? Email us at sumpcityradio at gmail.com. And if your raids have been successful and you've plenty of creds to spare, why not toss a cred to your DJ over at our Patreon page? www.patreon.com forward slash Sump City Radio. Every little bit helps support the show. And thank you for listening. This is the one, the only, Sump City Radio. Sump City Radio is a registered associate of the Hertzian Guild of Hive Primus and adheres to all communication laws decreed by Lord Halmar.